The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of this broadcast or podcast without the express written consent of Spaced Out Radio or Spaced Out Radio Limited is strictly prohibited. Listener discretion is advised. the mountains of British Columbia to you listening around the world. This is Spaced Out Radio with host Dave Scott. They let us play with all our toys. They let us think that we're big boys. They let us make a lot of noise but we're the world. They let us think we're Superman. You can follow us on our website, spacedoutradio.com on iTunes and tune in. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio on Facebook at Spaced Out Radio Show, or on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Are you playing with Bigfoot and aliens again? Uh, Dad, you gotta stop haunting the goat. It's scaring them. All right, seriously, put down the pointy sticks. Okay! Game on! Game on! Game on! Word is. Alright, alright, alright. Buckle up, space travelers. It's time to go for a ride on Spaced Out Radio. Mr. Bumblefoot, Dave is ready for liftoff. Seriously, Dave? Really? Aren't you a little old for a tinfoil hat? I am. Toby. Bye-bye. 
Good evening and welcome to Space Out Radio tonight as we kick off a brand new week. I am your host, Dave Scott. It's good to have you along for the ride on this Monday, March 6th. Tuesday, March 7th, if you're on the East Coast, we are live right here, right now in Uncle Jimbo's cabin, right here at the Great White North, as we are here seven days a week. Let's welcome in everyone listening in on WQEE 99, Rock the Key in Newton, Georgia, at SpaceOutRadio.com, on Spreaker, on the United Public Radio Network, Renegade Talk Radio, the High Plains Talk Radio Network, and on Revolution Radio. Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal, formerly of Guns N' Roses, currently of Art of Anarchy, is the music behind SOR. Bumblefoot rocks us in and out of every show as he is the official sound of Spaced Out Radio. Hey, if you're on social media like I am, what you could do is give us a check out on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. You can also follow me on Instagram, Dave Scott, SOR. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn, download this show and others on iTunes. We're also on RadioGuy.fm, TalkStream Live, and on Stitcher. And, of course, our website is SpacedOutRadio.com. And if you go to Patreon.com, we also have some cool offers for you there. Our listeners as well. Make sure you check those out. If you want to take part in this show, we do not take phone calls. You'll have to sign into one of the chat rooms, either on Revolution Radio, on Spreaker, on the UPRN chat room, or on Facebook at the SOR Space Travelers Club. Or if you're on Twitter, just go to the hashtag, Spaced Out Radio. I'll get to your questions and comments in there as well. If you head to our website, spaceoutradio.com, for just 5 bucks a month, you can become an SOR Space Traveler. We're going to offer you some decent swag, and it's our opportunity to give back to you. We also have a brand new news section called The Encounter that that deals with everything paranormal, courtesy of our editors Eric Markham and Everett Themer. You can check out my latest blog in there as well. It's about the brand new Space Out Radio Paracon, which goes in September. We'll get more into that as the days and weeks come ahead. And if you've had an experience you can't explain, fill out an SOR Sightlines report. Our researcher Mike Smith is ready to find out what's going on. We are live right now on WQEE 99 Rock the Key, way down in Noonan, Georgia. Thanks for sharing your nights with us at SOR. Make sure you also go and give their Facebook page a like. Renegade Talk Radio out of Las Vegas. We are live in Sin City on the United Public Radio Network on 107.7 FM in New Orleans. Good to have you with us along with over 160 countries around the world following us and we are live on Revolution Radio. The Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Tonight we are going into the unknown with Robert Morningstar. Robert is well known and well versed in a plethora of subject matter from remote viewing and lucid dreaming all the way over to the afterlife and aliens above. It's something he has studied for decades. Robert, by trade, is a civilian intelligence analyst and psychotherapist in New York City. 
He's received a degree in psychology from Fordham University, an expert in Chinese language, history, martial arts, and is an FAA licensed pilot and instrument ground instructor with 23 years of flying experience. This dude does it all. Robert has studied the paranormal and UFOs for over 40 years and has published many research articles on the internet exposing government cover-up and deception in the JFK assassination, and his work is cited in major books on the assassination, notably Paris Flamand's The Assassination of America and Conspiracy Science by a well-known voice around here, Professor James Fetzer. He has also written extensively to expose NASA's use of disinformation technology in suppressing evidence of extraterrestrial life and exposing the real nature and threat of the UFO phenomenon. We welcome in to Space Out Radio for the first time, Robert Morningstar. Robert, good to have you with us. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, especially since uh, you're broadcasting in, from British Columbia, and I have so many friends there that are listening in tonight. And I hope to say hello to, to some of them, or many of them. Uh, let's start out now by giving a shout-out to Lucille, who is uh, one of my friends on Facebook and has, sends me some very interesting photographs of UFOs in the British Columbia area. So believe your eyes, folks. When you look in the sky and you see something unusual, don't doubt your own senses. Well, Lucille Lucille has just popped into our chat room on Spreaker. Hello, Lucille, my fellow British Columbian. You're about three and a half hours north of me where I am broadcasting. So thank you for tuning us in for the first time. Make sure you give us a like on Spreaker. Robert, thank you for bringing in a brand new crowd for us. I appreciate that, man. Yeah. Uh, I have a very uh, strong friendship and kinship with uh, Canadian friends from coast to coast. And by that I mean... From your west coast of British Columbia, all the way to Halifax, Finland. Uh, what is that, Labrador? Is it the farthest one? Yeah, I have friends everywhere, oh. including uh, Stanton Friedman, one of the great uh, UFO researchers of all times. He has uh, he's been living in Canada for a long time too. So I'm very happy to be amongst friends. Well, you know what? It's great to be with you tonight for the first time because, you know, a lot of times when you're sitting in this chair, the months, believe it or not, they go by so quickly. And every month we sit down as a booking committee trying to figure out who to get. And I kept seeing your name pop up and I'm like, damn it, I got to get this guy. And when I researched you, all of a sudden I was like, yes, I am going after Robert Morningstar. So, you're right up our alley because you, my friend, you literally have run the gamut in studying for the last 40 years. Everything that is a part of these type of radio shows, television shows, YouTube channels, documentaries. What made you decide, and you're an educated guy, that you needed to research this a little bit more? What triggered you? Well, it's actually the fact that I and my family had the gift of um, psychic abilities throughout my life from my childhood on. My, my mother, my aunts, my, uh, my stepfather, all of us were psychic. You know, my, I mean, it was really, really hard growing up with parents who could read your thoughts. And I'm not kidding, you know. They'd look at us and they'd say, don't even think about doing that. <laughs> or 
Uh, one element, one, one uh, incident, you know, when kids are mischievous and you try to get away with stuff, you know, tripping elevator alarms was uh, kind of a fun thing for a bunch of 10-year-old kids. And so we figured, you know, if you trip the alarm on your floor, everybody's going to figure you out. So let's trip it on somebody else's floor where none of us live. So a bunch of us were there. And I, and I dare you, you know. So most of the time the other kids were doing it. And this time they dared me. And I, I was kind of chicken, but they dared me. So then I threw it. And it was over on the fifth floor. And so we all scattered, you know, big alarm. We all scattered running around, got lost, each of us, for like 45 minutes. I walked back home. And I walk in and my mother says to me, that was you, wasn't it? I go, what? And she goes, that was you, wasn't it? I go, what? She says, you tripped the alarm in the elevator, right? And I, I couldn't say no. You know, I just got bug-eyed. How did she go? She said, when that alarm went off, I felt something in my heart. And I knew it was you. And so... She said, at least she didn't lie to me. I just I just said, what? You know? So she had that gift. My, but my in my personal uh, experience is that from childhood, I would have dreams of coming events. And one of the most significant ones um, occurred around 1957 or 58. Uh, I think it was 57. I think there was a, a movie made that year called The Night to Remember. It was about the Titanic. And I was sound asleep uh, one morning. And these uh, experiences, the remote viewing experiences, usually come to me between 4 and 6 o'clock in the morning. And in this uh, experience, I would call this lucid dreaming because remote viewing you do while you're awake. The same faculty when you're asleep is called lucid dreaming. But here was the dream. I turned down the television and I saw Walter Cronkite a famous old anchor man for CBS News saying, ladies and gentlemen, I'm pleased to inform you that the wreck of the Titanic has been found on the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Ireland. And it was so vivid, so real, that somehow I knew it was true, but it wasn't true in 1958. But it did become true something like 25 years later when Bob Ballard found the the Titanic on the bottom of the sea. But I had I received the television transmission um, 25 years early. Another kind of television transmission that I receive while I'm asleep are notifications of the deaths of people whom I hold dear to myself. And uh, sometimes of people that I've known, met, for example, Christopher Reeves, and at other times with people that I, I have not met but admired. And in this case, it was um, uh, Peter Jennings, who at the end of his life, uh, as he was perishing from cancer, he became very courageous and he put on a TV show on UFOs on, CBS, on ABC News. And he went very far very far, farther than any other reporter uh, in, in that era, in taking the subject seriously and presenting very serious uh, documentation, photographs, and eyewitness uh, Air Force officers uh, and crewmen who had been on a B-52 that had seen UFO and so on. Anyway, I admired him for many reasons. He was a, an honorable man, and I saw him once on 
on uh, PBS with some journalists, including Dan Rather. And the group was asked, if you were in Vietnam and you were on uh, doing a story on the other side of the battle, if you were embedded with the Viet Cong, and you were uh, filming an ambush on American soldiers, would you try to warn them? And Dan Rather, to his everlasting damnation for this and other things, said, no, as a professional journalist, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to warn them. And they turned to Peter Jennings, and Peter Jennings uh, was, uh, posed the same question. And Peter Jennings said, well, first of all, I'm a Canadian, but even though I'm a Canadian, I would feel compelled to try to warn the Americans. And my respect, my admiration for him grew immeasurably. And so that's one of the reasons I admired Peter Jennings, and I don't admire Dan Rather. So this day comes along a couple of years ago where I'm, again, in the uh, lucid dream state. And in that dream state, I turn on the television, and I see this person with sharp, beautiful features, and he looks at me. I mean, he's, I'm looking at television. He's looking at the camera. And he says, I regret to inform you of the death of me. Me. And I said, what? And he said, I regret to, the, to inform you of the death of Mimi. Mimi. And I, I was confused. And I looked at his face, and he actually looked like a lady that I had known many, many years ago, whose name was Mimi. She had very fine features and a beautiful straight nose and high cheekbones. And I said, what a strange dream. So I wake up that morning, go to the television, and uh, an ABC anchorman is there with a very long face. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, I regret to inform you of the death last night of ABC reporter Peter Jennings. And I realized, oh, my God, it was Peter Jennings. And he was saying to me, I regret to inform you of the death of me. And I said, who? Me, me. He didn't say Mimi. He said me, me. So I took it to be Mimi. So now this is this is the really strange part of it. I mean, besides the dream and waking up to find out he's dead, I'm mystified by the experience, as I usually am. I, it happens many times, but you're always surprised, amazed, and you wonder, why did, why did you know, I get the message, you know? So I go up to get to something from my car in a garage, and I'm walking back, and I had this experience that was like in the movie Always, you know, the movie with Dreyfus and Brad Johnson about the pilot yes. who gets killed, yeah, and the ghost comes up. Okay, well, that's a very beautiful movie, a remake of a World War II movie named, uh, called A Guy Named Joe. So I go to the garage, and I got my stuff, and I'm walking back, and I walk by these homeless people, and I walk past this lady, you know, down and out, street lady, alcoholic, and she says, did you hear about the death of Peter Jennings? <laughs> I do a double take, and I look at her, and I said, well, yeah, and I said, yeah, and then I walked on. I said, that's the strangest thing. What am I, emanating Peter Jennings? Is he hanging around me? And I got the feeling that that was it, that, you know, his his spirit had attached himself to me for a few hours, and this lady picked it up. 
and it was just again there's a there's a, several psychic experiences all bundled up in those synchronicities. But um, I told you earlier uh, when we spoke um, on first contact about my experience on the night that Ronald Reagan passed away in that I had an encounter with what is traditionally called the Banshee, which is a, a black figure that appears to people. Sometimes it appears to the victim who's going to die. And other times it appears to relatives of the victim to warn them that that the the victim, I'll call him any, you know, definitely victim, makes victims of us all. So uh, it appears to a kinsman to warn them that this kinsman is going to die. Sometimes it, it's a very horrifying figure. It's, it's supposed to shriek and wail a scream that is blood-curdling and panics people or paralyzes people. So on this particular night, uh, I went to sleep quite peacefully. And in this instance, I had uh, this experience with two ghosts. One ghost had come 23 years before on the night that Reagan was shot. It scared the hell out. It nearly killed me. It nearly killed me. I survived it. It, it redirected my life for the next 30 years and even now, even more. So this ghost is approaching me. And I said to him quite brashly, I said, what are you doing here tonight? You haven't shown up in 23 years. And when I did that, this was a white-clad ghost. He backed up, and he just disappeared. And as soon as he backed up, this black form came in and started to assault me. And it started to suffocate me. And I and this the presence of these entities, like extraterrestrials, ghosts have a field around them that tends to paralyze a human individual. It acts on your nervous system and short-circuits you, whatever. However it works, it does wind up giving you a cer certain form of paralysis. So the only thing I could move was my eyes and my neck. But otherwise I was paralyzed. And the only power that I feel I had was my breath. So this entity, the banshee, is like a giant black sail coming upon you or a winged caped thing with a with a and an energy that is devoid of light. It does not reflect light. It does not emanate light. And yet it has a shape like like a, a, a really black shade. So he starts to assail me and assault me and trying to suffocate me. I can feeling this hand covering my nose and my mouth and trying to smother me. And I'm thrashing and I'm throwing my head side to side so I can take the next breath. And this battle went on for three hours to the point of sweat, exhaustion, fatigue, and I kept fighting it. And at the last moment, when I felt that I was at the last breath of my life, he attacked me again, smothered me, and I said to him, I know you are death, but I'm going to fight you till the last breath of my life. And with that, I took one last gasp of air, and I just blew with the most powerful breath that I could blow. And when I did that last, my, my dying breath, I blew this thing away like a sailboat in a gale. It just went and gone. And then I slept and I rested. And I had a really wonderful, peaceful sleep for five hours after that exhaustion, only to wake up 
turn on the television and hear the announcer say, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we regret to inform you that President Reagan is in his last hours of life. He's in critical condition in intensive care. His family is with him, and he's not expected to survive. President Reagan is uh, perishing from complications due to pneumonia. So what I feel I experienced was Ronald Reagan's death in my soul, in my lucid dreams. I was in his place, and I feel that I can tell the public that Ronald Reagan fought for his life to the last breath of his life, and he fought death to the last moment. And that's the kinship that I feel I have had with Ronald Reagan since I was a little boy. And as I said, love, admiration. I fell in love with the Gipper. You know, you see that movie, Newt Rockney, All-American? And you see Ronald Reagan in his prime, and he was one of the best men in film. And the charisma and the character and the goodness of the man just radiated from him. And um, I feel that I have a kinship with him, spiritual or uh, common bloodlines, whatever, however you want to explain it. Uh, I have it, and I've had it, because I experienced a near-death experience from a ghost on the night that he was shot in 1981. And then both ghosts, or the ghost and the banshee, showed up on the night that Ronald Reagan died. So we have these relationships. We don't even know we do, you know. We make them during life. Um, I believe it comes from genuine affection, love, that a person may have for another person, an icon, you know, like a movie star, I would call them an icon, a model, a hero. And so this bond is formed during life, and you don't know it until the end of life. And I'll share one more with you. For the last 30 years, uh, I have had in my room an 8.5 by 11 glossy, color glossy photo of Christopher Reeves as Superman. Because I met Christopher Reeve in 1977 when he was making Superman 1 here in New York City. And they used the Daily News... Uh, plant on 42nd Street as the Daily Planet. And I used to work at the Daily News as uh, in the circulation department, you know, driving trucks, loading them up, delivering the paper. So I knew exactly where it was. So I went down there and I had this really great, you know, moment of uh, eye-to-eye contact with Superman, you know. And I always admired his characterizations. So one night, um, I had this dream that I was flying, but I was flying on my back, and I couldn't control my flying. And all of a sudden, I was flying downward and backwards, as if sliding down a hill on your back. And I look out and I go, no, I don't want to fly this way. I don't want to fly backwards and downwards. I want to go up. I was looking at sky. And all of a sudden, I see that the sky turns into this big circle and I look to the side and I realize I was flying down into the caldera, the cone of a volcano. I was heading for the underworld. And I said, no, no, I don't want to fly backwards. I don't want to fly down. I want to go up. I want to go up. 
And I just kept descending, you know, on my back, flying backwards, head really head first, down into this uh, caldera, a volcanic cone. And as I went deeper and deeper, the, vo- the sides of the volcanic cone rose up to make a circle of sky, and the circle of sky got smaller and smaller. And it was a very, very unpleasant and disturbing dream, only to wake up the next morning and uh, receive news that Christopher Reeves had died and had perished uh, from his affliction, which was, you know, quadriplegia after a broken neck, and then bed sores um, took their toll and he succumbed. And there are many others, you know, so this, this relationship I have, but the relationship that I can speak about so openly now was triggered by an experience that I had in 1975. As a matter of fact, in March, it was March 28th of 1975, which happened to be a good Friday, a ghost came to my bedside. I grew really frightened. I mean, you're alone in your house, and all of a sudden, somebody there. And uh, fortunately, fortunately, I had had a, a warning, an inkling of something, and it was a dream that I had had five days before in which I was in my living room and looked out the window and saw a giant 747 airliner coming down silently to crash. It had lost its engines. And I'm looking at it, and in the dream, the voice said, Robert, you might die. You might die right now. And as I saw the plane about to crash into my building, I ran through my house or my apartment, which was like a labyrinth, you know, I had to you know, warn through this warn, and I, to a place where I thought I would escape the crash. And I heard the crash, and then I survived it. Then I ran to a window, opened the window, looked up, and the airplane was embedded in the building across the street with the wings straddling my building and the building across the alley. Then I saw an engine break away and come crashing down onto this this gigantic monolithic rock that is situated right next to my apartment. It, I mean, it is monolithic. It was so big that the constructors of my building and the building next door just gave up trying to blow it up. And I think it is a lodestone, a spiritual lodestone that's responsible in part for, for the psychic energy that I experience here. So the engine falls off and crashes and explodes and at the explosion of it, I came back in the window, woke up sweating, pouring sweat, trembling and shaking. And the first thought in my brain was, my brother is in mortal danger. And I thought of my two uh, siblings. But what could I do? One was in California and one was traveling around in, you know, in Central America. So I just went back to sleep. A couple of days later, I told a psychic about this dream, and she said to me, oh, you know what that is? That's somebody close to you, who loves you, who's going to die. And I got worried about, again, my family. That's who you think about, you know, when you talk about loved ones. She says, somebody who loves you very much is going to die. Well, that was on a Wednesday. And two days later, this event happens that I'm going to describe to you. In the afternoon of March 28, 1975, I had gotten up late, I had done exercises, I had been doing meditation, tai chi, kung fu, calligraphy, and I had a lot of energy. And then about 3.30 in the afternoon, I suddenly got hit with something that made me completely weak, sleepy, debilitated, 
slight shivers or something. Uh, and I remember I said, I'd better take a rest. So I went over to my bed and lay down. I took a blanket to cover my body so I wouldn't get cold. And I just rested. And I didn't fall asleep. I just rested. And all of a sudden, somebody appeared in... Uh, actually, no, my... my my um, my body stayed in the bed. My soul came out of the bed because I had started to do some deep breathing meditations that I had learned from the Tai Chi masters to center your chi, your life force, and your dantian. So I had gone into this deep breathing sequence. And in that moment, my soul left my body and went to the living room to the exact same point or spot where I'd been standing in the dream five days before. And I noticed that. I said, wow, this is where I was five days ago in the dream. And I look out the window looking for the 747 that's going to crash, but there was none. But a voice said to me, Robert, get back into your body. There's somebody else in here. And I said to myself, wow, that's a strange thought to think. And then I heard the voice again say, Robert, get back into your body. There's somebody else in here. And zip, I was back in my body. And I was awake. And I was seeing somebody walking from my living room toward my bed, across two rooms. See, I had the living room and the bedroom with sliding doors. I guess they call them French doors. When they you slide them out into the walls, they disappear. Well, this figure is walking toward me, and all of a sudden I feel intruder, intruder. And I try to rouse myself, and I'm paralyzed. I couldn't move. And this person is walking toward me, dressed in black, and I'm on my side, my left eye is open, my right eye is closed, and I'm paralyzed. And this being is walking toward me, and I felt threatened. And I started, as paralyzed as I was, I could clench my fist, so I clenched my fist. When I clenched my fist, this voice said, Don't be afraid, Robert. Nothing can harm you. And it was so forthright, so assuring, it calmed me, and I said, Okay, I'm going to trust this. I'm going to weather this out. And I relinquished the fist and just waited. The person came up to the side of my bed and reached down and touched me in the forehead and the third eye. And I was infused with so much love that I was shocked that anyone could love anyone so much. I felt unworthy quite Frankly, I said to myself, who is this who could love me so much? This, this love, is I could only compare it to that of a parent for an ailing child. And he touched me and I could see the hand and I could see a golden glow around this sort of yellowish golden hand. And I then curiosity got to me because I was receiving a blessing. This person loved me, was touching me was giving me something, and I wanted to know who it was. Because I could see from the floor to the chest, and I could see the arm touching me, but because I was slightly on my left side, and my left eye was open, my right eye was closed, I couldn't see the top. And with, with all my might, I took my hand and put my five fingers of my right hand to my right eyelid, and tried to pry it open. And that eye would not let itself be open. Imagine the, the strength of an eyelid versus the power of your five fingers, you know, 
press your five fingers together or four fingers against the thumb and make a lot of power and then spring it. Well, that I would not open for anything. And when I did that, the being stepped back quietly, gently, and started to walk away. And now I saw the back of the person. I saw the back of a white, gray-haired person with a long black robe that went down to between the knee and the ankle, like the, like a professor's robe. And as I scanned down from the top to the bottom, I was amazed to see that the feet appeared not to touch the ground. And I said, my God, look at that. His feet don't even touch the ground. And then as I looked up to see the whole body once again, now in the other room, it disappeared from upper right shoulder and head to lower left, and it dissolved, dematerialized. And what do you think I said? I said to myself, my God, it's just like the teleportation machine in Star Trek. Because that's exactly what it looked like. As soon as he disappeared, I could move. I, I jumped out of bed. I was so amazed. I went, washed my face, and you know, trying to get myself together and wondering, am I sane? This thing really happened to me? Well, um, an hour later, a friend of mine knocked on the door usually a friendly, happy-go-lucky rock and roller named Kenny. And I opened the door, and he was one of my Kung Fu and Tai Chi friends, you know, and he, I look at him, he had the longest, saddest face I'd ever seen on him. And I said, hey, Kenny, what's the matter? And he said, Robert, I have some bad news for you. And I said to myself, I said, what could be so bad as to make his face look like that? I said, what is it? He said, Professor Chang is dead. He died three days ago in China. My friend Mr. Khan just read it in a Chinese newspaper. And I realized that my Tai Chi master, the Grand Master, Professor Cheng Manqing, had died in China three days before. And on that Good Friday, 1975, his ghost came to me, scared the hell out of me, then gave me a blessing that I will never forget for the rest of my life, and gave me a counsel that I have not forgotten for the rest of my life, which was, don't be afraid, Robert. Nothing can harm you. And so I owe this gift. You know, some people call it necromancy, the ability to communicate with ghosts or the, the, the depart, dearly departed. And I have helped many ghosts find rest, peace, because they died, um, let's call it unjustifiable deaths. And uh, so when, and let me do this, I, when I give this talk, I, I do it with a specific purpose, and the specific purpose is to warn people against suicide. If you think that you're going to solve your problems by committing suicide, you are, right now you're live wrong, and if you do it, you're going to be dead wrong. Because while you're in the body, whatever problems you may have, you are in the body, and you have a body and a mind that can solve those problems. But when you commit suicide, the problems remain, the body is gone, the resolution has not been had, and you will become what is called a hungry ghost or a wandering ghost by the Tibetans. And so those ghosts have no recourse and they are suffering. And so, if they're lucky enough to have someone who loved them, 
at kinship, affection. They can reach out to that person for help. And that's what's happened to me a couple of times in my life. And that's what I was relating. That was one of the reasons that first ghost came to me at Oberlin and on the night that Reagan was shy. But I warn people, suicide does not solve your problems. It only compounds them. So be brave. Face up, uh, face your problems. You have all the power you need mentally and physically to resolve them here while you're in the body. But when you don't have a body and you've sacrificed your life thinking that you're going to escape your problems, you take them with you. And you will have to find somebody like me to help you resolve them. There are other people who do this kind of work. It's very, very strenuous. It's very difficult. Uh, other things, for example, person died and uh, people thought it was a suicide. And he left a wife and family. And he left a long library uh, to someone and the library was given to me and I started to read everything in that library and it, it educated me. This particular library came from a professor at um, Brown University who later perished and they thought that he had committed suicide. And uh, somehow this library came in and I had his thesis and I had his diary. I found them in there and I started to read the diary. And it turned out that you know the, the fellow... You know, I didn't think he committed suicide. Something else happened. Now, 15 years or so passed by, and this kid shows up at my doorstep, figuratively speaking, calls me up and says he wants to study Tai Chi. So he comes and studies Tai Chi with me, and as soon as he walks in, you know, we, we hit it off, really friendly. I took him into my office where I had all of these books, the library. And he starts going, he's to the books and he's touching them all and he's going, wow, you have a lot of books. I go, yes, I love books and this is this is my uh, secondary library. My, my main books are up there in the front where I teach Tai Chi. All right, let's go to class. And he said, yeah, my, uh, before he said, he said, oh yeah, my father, my father had a lot of books. Uh, he, he also loved books. He had a lot of books. So we went in, we had the class, we came back and then I remember this thing I said, oh, you said your father had a lot of books. Did he pass away? He said, yeah, my father passed away when I was a little boy. I said, oh. And he says, well, he didn't really pass away. He committed suicide. I said, oh, really? And I said to him, what's your name? And he told me his name. And I said to him, Tim, these are your father's books. He said, what? I said, Tim, these are your father's books. I have had these books for 15 years. Look at the name. I pulled out a book. His father's signature was in it. I said, Tim, I have your father's thesis. I have your father's diary. And I'm going to give them all to you. And in this way, this uh, young man got the diary that he was able to read and discern from the diary that his father had not killed himself and something else had transpired. And... Um, that really set him on his path because it was a really great burden and onus to think of yourself as, as the, the son of a suicide. And so there was, some, there was this message that the ghost wanted to get to his son. And it took 15 years before the, the chi, the chi of the books, drew him back. Now I'll tell you something else. 
other really strange things had happened with around these books. My cousin had walked into the house one day and he saw somebody in the hallway cross into my room where I had the books. He thought it was me. And he went right walking into the room and said, hey, Robert, how you doing? And he looked and there was no one in there. So he went into tremors. Another time, my brother walked in and he saw a figure walk into the books, also in my room. So these are poltergeists, uh, you know, and, and spirits who are not at rest. And so when that happens, you have to deal with it. I have a friend named Paul Schroeder who has a very interesting take on it because he's a very psychic person. He's, had, uh, he's written a lot for UFO Digest, which is the publication that I, I publish and I edit. And uh, I inherited more or less the, 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 the position of publisher when my dear friend Dirk van der Ploeg passed away. Um, two years ago and um, I'm happy to say that I've been able to keep it going with the help of many many fine writers who have supported us throughout this period so the um, the point is that you know it doesn't end death is the death of the body souls are immortal and so I caution people not to despair to keep faith keep hope uh, as difficult as any uh, travail may be, any challenge may be, God has given you all the power that you need to get through it. And I've come close to, to death many times, but fortunately, Professor Cheng said to me, don't be afraid, Robert, nothing can harm you. And I still hold it to heart. And that's what's kept me alive during some very... Um, remarkable experiences with ghosts and uh, you know close encounters with extraterrestrials not all of them benevolent is anybody there out there send a question <laughs> because I've been talking for a long time well you know we uh, the one thing about what we do on this show is we let our guests speak because in yeah. the end people are here to hear you not me so well, I, I have no problem being that guy who's not going to cut you off and just just to hear myself well, speak. I, have... I do yeah. appreciate that very much. But I, I also, if any, if you have any comment or questions, just feel free because that's how we get into a freewheeling, absolutely uh, rambling conversation. Absolutely. As long as I'm here and mentioned UFOs, I would like to point out that UFO Digest has been producing some of the best uh, reportage and research in u ufology. For, since 1999 and recently we published some remarkable articles one of them, the most recent one is by Cherry Hinkley Hinkle, excuse me uh, Cherry Hinkle is a UFO researcher and a mother who lives in the great southwest and she had close, close, counter, close encounters with UFOs and ETs but she was also an intimate friend of uh, Thomas Costello and Branton and Phil Schneider. And so she knows uh, the real deal about Dulce and the Dulce base in Dulce, New Mexico. 
and she's written a book about uh, a book. She's writing a book, but she's written an article that I published most recently on UFO Digest. It's a cover story, and it's about Dulce Base and the new technology of terror, how high technology, advanced uh, technologies, and artificial intelligence are being used to manipulate us to change our nature and uh, to control our lives in unnatural ways. Mm-hmm. So I recommend that, and I also tip my hat to Steve Erdman, who has uh, written uh, several very lengthy articles, detailed articles, both on Nazis and UFOs, and the Nazi UFOs, and on the John F. Kennedy assassination and uh, the events that were happening in New Orleans prior to the the, uh, the loss of the Republic, which I think we just got back this year. So, mm-hmm. so I hardly recommend your projections. <coughs> there are so many different ways we can go with this, Robert. You know, from anyway, remote, from remote viewing to alien encounters and UFOs. With UFO Digest, one of the things that we have been analyzing heavily on this show is the regards that a lot of people, whether in the field of ufology, paranormal, or the cryptid world, they tend to use a lot of their own personal opinion as scientific mm-hmm. fact. Yeah. I think I think that is completely dangerous for what we do as researchers, as journalists, as writers, because the minute we start to try and institute our own personal opinion as fact, maybe because mm-hmm. we do not believe in certain parts of the paranormal, ufological, or cryptid world, mm-hmm. how dangerous is that when when you are working for a magazine that absolutely is focused on UFOs, but you have to be able to get quality information in order to report on it. Right. Well, I, I have to say that I, I'm the judge of that. I, I correspond with the uh, writer. Um, if it rings true. You know, there's this, the ring of truth. You know, is, is something that, that we tune into. Um the, the difficulty is that you cannot apply science uh, and physics to something that is metaphysical. You see, there is a limit. There is the limit to science. The limit to science is instrumentation, the ability of an instrument to measure an energy. When you go beyond a certain uh, density, if you want to call it, that instrument cannot measure that. You know? And... Uh, this is where we cross over into interdimensional reality, which is real, but not substantial. It's real, but not material. And so a material sensor cannot measure that. So the only real material sensor that can measure that is the human mind, the human brain, the human nervous system as experience. So that's what I'm relating to you my experience but it's through my sensory apparatus my body my five senses my higher senses that i've developed uh, as, a year, as years and years of training uh, i'm more sensitive to energies around us than other people are and i have to tell you it's one thing to see a ghost but it's another thing to be touched by a ghost and i have been touched by a ghost more than once 
Yeah, but you have to have the ability to to take it. Because, my God, I know people have been touched by ghosts and freaked out and almost lost their minds. So your mind has to be strong enough uh, and broad enough to encompass the idea that we are living in a multidimensional reality and that the reality that we're living in right now, this uh, three men, I just knocked on my desk, that three-dimensional material reality is is not eternal. It, even now, in those three knocks that I gave my desk, that desk has changed and uh, gone through permutations, millions, millions of permutations, because we live in an intermittent universe. It's binary. It's matter and antimatter. What does that mean? Matter, it means I'm here, I'm in my body, and then for a milli, less nanosecond, I may be antimatter. And then I'm matter again. And then I'm antimatter again. So that's why I say an intermittent, a blinking universe. We blink on. We're here. We blink off. We're not here presently, physically. But we remember that we have an endurance in time. And when we come back to the material world, we see that it's changed. Time has passed. Molecules have been altered. Things have gotten older. You know, even one second older. But in that moment, we persisted, we existed. But the reason that we don't know that we're in that other dimension is that that other dimension is immaterial and has no sensory input. You know, we we cannot sense it. It's not there. We're in the void. We're antimatter. But we are existing. That's our sense of our own duration and time. Mm -hmm. There is a person in Dave Scott that has never changed since he was a child. Do you agree with me? Oh, there is yes. a be there's, there's this core David Scott that was in the cradle, crawled out of the cradle, toddled around, he grew bigger, he changed in size, you grew, you learned, your personality went through many alterations, but there is an essential core nugget point of Dave Scott that is still the same Dave Scott that was in the cradle, the same here for Robert Morningstar. And that is the self and the one that knows that you are here. It's the one that says, I am here. That's, that's a very profound statement. And that being, I call that being the master of the house because that being never sleeps. Robert's body goes to sleep but that being is monitoring the heartbeat and the metabolism, keeping the liver and the kidneys in function and the blood is flowing and sensing all night, is there any danger around to Robert? Is there any threat? And if there is one, Robert wakes up. Like, what was that? Yeah. So that's why I call that, that entity, that being or that faculty, the master of the house. And the more attention you pay to it, the, the, you develop a relationship with it. You start to trust it because our egos, our egos are limited. You know, they're limited by our educations, our perceptions, and the quality of the information upon which the ego is acting. But the master of the house knows all things. In, uh, knows your heart. Knows your soul. Knows what's going to happen or what possibly can happen. And here we get into the nature of remote viewing as a survival function of the human being. 
that has been shut down intentionally over the last 70 years in particular by the skepticism of science. Science wants to debunk the spiritual world, the psychic world. If you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. And so this faculty has been suppressed in the majority of human beings, except that it's so strong in some human beings who are gifted with a very special gene, which I'll talk about in, in a moment, that can break through and will not let itself be suppressed. It's just too powerful. Robert, I'm going to cut you off there because we are literally going to go to break here momentarily. Robert Morningstar is our guest tonight. Very accomplished and experienced man when it comes to everything from remote viewing to UFOs and so much more. Go to UFO Digest to learn more about Robert as well. You're listening to Space Out Radio. I am your host, Dave Scott. We'll see you on the other side. From coast to coast to coast, Blacklight Uncharted is taking on the paranormal across Canada. From ghostly hauntings to the UFOs flying above in conjunction with MUFON Canada, they're closely investigating what's going on in the northern skies and checking out the apparitions that walk among us. Check out our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. We want to know your thoughts, we want to hear your experiences, and we want you to share your stories. The answers are out there, and we intend to find them. Would you like to become one of our space travelers? All you have to do is click on the Space Travelers icon at spacedoutradio.com. For only $5 a month, you can get access to some great prizes, as well as private monthly shows, newsletters, and a members-only section on our website. Become a space traveler today. The third Monday of every month, Spaced Out Radio is going to bring you a different look at everything paranormal. Welcome to The Reporters. Jim Mallard, Vanessa Hogel, Denise Garcia, and Christina George join me, Dave Scott, for a look at the weird and strange from the other side of the microphone. We'll break down ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, and the people investigating them. The paranormal media has never been heard like this. Come listen to the reporters. It's paranormal news at its finest. Welcome to The Encounter. At spaceoutradio.com, The Encounter Online is SOR's trusted news source for everything weird and strange going on around the world. This is news editor Eric Markham. Our team of journalists are scouring the planet for those strange stories that rarely make the mainstream. No fear-mongering or fake news here. Head over to spaceoutradio.com and encounter The Encounter. Hey, this is Canadian Paranormal Investigator Mike Moore. The third Wednesday of every month, I'll be teaming up with Dave Scott to bring you Ghosts of the Great White North. Each month, we will bring on guests from across Canada to discuss their ghostly encounters. Canada is a paranormal hotbed with stories you've never heard, so we're going to bring them to you. So get comfy on your Chesterfield, grab a donut, and join us, eh? Have you had an experience you can't explain? Had a run-in with ghosts, maybe Bigfoot, or seen lights in the sky? Hi, I'm Mike Schmidt from the SOR Sightlines. I'm here to investigate your sighting. Head to spacedoutradio.com and fill out a report on the sightlines. All your information is 100% confidential, and I will help you figure out what you've been seeing. File your report, and let's find out the answers together. Visit purpleplates.com today. 
For over 40 years, the Purple Energy Plates have been delivering amazing results for their many customers. Inspired by the great genius Nikola Tesla, the harmony, healing, and energetic effects of the plates have proven over and over to be beneficial and often miraculous to thousands of customers. With their money-back guarantee and the many benefits, how can you afford not to get one? Check their site for daily specials and choose from their many energy products. You won't be sorry. Visit them today at purpleplates.com for mind, body, and spirit. And expect a miracle. Are you interested in advertising on Spaced Out Radio? Head to our website at spacedoutradio.com and click on our advertising tab. There, you will find an assortment of ways you can get your product out there with us. From radio commercials to banners and social media. Have a product you like our hosts to endorse? We can do that too. Visit spacedoutradio.com for more details. Have you got your Cosmic Passport? If you need one, tune in to Cosmic Passport on Spaced Out Weekend. This is Elizabeth Anglin, ET experiencer, spirit medium, and host of Cosmic Passport. Each weekend, I'll be bringing you interviews and support from other paranormal experiencers and the best in intuitive spiritual guidance from across the globe. It's all happening starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern, on spacedoutradio.com. From British Columbia to Northern California, Pacific North Weird has Cascadia covered. Check out our feature videos at spacedoutradio.com, where I, Vincent Zunza, and my super sleuth partner, Alexandra Sullivan, track down the weird and strange stories from around the Pacific Northwest from Bigfoot to Mel's Hole, and everything in between. This is what makes life exciting. So why report the normal when we can report the Pacific North Weird? Right here at spacedoutradio.com. Oh, there's only one way to rock. Loud and proud. In high definition, Radio 702 Rocks, Las Vegas. Every Saturday and Sunday night, as Dave Scott wanders aimlessly in the wilderness, you can come hang out with me, James Tyson, and Spaced Out Weekend. Starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, I'll take you along as we talk with some of the best experts in their fields. SpacedOutRadio.com is the place to find us. So sit down, relax, put your feet up. Enjoy the topics like the paranormal, supernatural, intuitiveness, and so much more. Hope to see you there. Don't have time to listen to Spaced Out Radio Live? Wherever you are, the car, the office, the shower, or even if you're traveling, we're right here for you. Each Spaced Out Radio show can be found on iTunes, TuneIn, and on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. It's the perfect way for you to catch up on our shows. For more information, just head over to our website, spacedoutradio.com, and tune in to us today. Views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Would you like to connect with us? Head to spacedoutradio.com for all your latest show info. And hit us up on Twitter using the hashtag SpacedOutRadio. Now, back to Dave Scott and S.O.R. 
Welcome back to hour number two of Space Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Good to have you along with us. Tomorrow night on the show, Thomas Seward is going to join us on his birthday. And we're going to talk Bigfoot for three hours. What they are, what they're all about, and get a First Nations perspective on the big hairy Sasquatch. 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time at spacedoutradio.com on WQEE 99 Rock the Key on 107.7 FM in New Orleans, Renegade Talk Radio, and on Revolution Radio. Remember, if you're listening in on the Double R Machine, Revolution Radio is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Bill Cardwell has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Pre-anti-penultimate. Pre-anti-penultimate is your password. Make sure you use it wisely. Jeff, in the chat room, we are going to need a definition of pre-anti-penultimate. And by the way, Jeff, happy birthday from all of us at Space Out Radio. Appreciate you taking the time to spend it on your special day with us. If you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Also use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio to get a question or a comment into me as well. You could give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn. Download this show and others on iTunes. We're also on Stitcher, TalkStream Live, and RadioGuide.fm. And our website is SpacedOutRadio.com, where we have a plethora of features for you, including joining the SOR Space Travelers Club for five bucks a month. We also have some really cool offers for all of our listeners. Head over to patreon.com and find out what they are. It's a mystery. You got to go to patreon.com to figure it out. Robert Morningstar is our guest tonight. He's going to be joining us for one more hour here before Everett Themer is going to hop into the hot seat in hour number three. Robert, welcome back. Thank you couple questions from our audience for you, Robert, and then uh, you have some breaking news that you are going to tell for the first time right here on Space Out Radio. Marie is asking for a friend. As a pilot, have you ever had any unique encounters or experiences while up in the sky? Oh, yes. That's why I became a pilot. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I always wanted to fly since childhood. And then in my 30s, I, I arrived at a point where I could earn my license. I'll tell you, folks, it's not easy to earn your pilot's license living in New York City. There's no place to park the plane. So you have to drive very, very far to find uh, training centers. And I did that. And the reason was that I felt, you know, I'm interested in the subject. And you're very likely, more likely, to see a UFO if you're up in the sky regularly than if you're not. And so... I have had uh, close encounters in the air, and I wrote about it uh, in UFO Digest many years ago. I think you can still find the article. It's called Two Eggs on a Roll, No Beacon. And that's a pun, like on no bacon. And a beacon is a transmitter that you have in the airplane that uh, is called a transponder. And instead of waiting for radar to hit your airplane and bounce back to the radar station, you have a radar uh, frequency generator in the airplane that sends out a beam without it, without it hitting you. You just send your signal to the radar station with your code name, and that's called the transponder. So in the New York area, uh, it's especially in the major airport areas which overlap, you can't fly in these areas without a beacon. So 
one March in 1990, I was doing a solo from MacArthur Airport to Albany, and then over to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, and then back, three-legged cross-country. So I've just taken off, and I'm flying at 1,800 feet, approaching something called the Northport Stacks. In Northport, Long Island, there are these uh, giant smokestacks from a power station there, and we use them as a reporting point. So I've just taken off, and I'm still under air traffic control from MacArthur Airport, and reporting my position and getting separation traffic, uh, we call it traffic reports, the airplanes around you that are coming from to you, by you, from you, around you, all angles, so that nobody crashes, you're given warning. So all of a sudden, out of the fog or the mist in the morning, it was about 11 in the morning, I look down to my left, and I see two objects moving pretty fast and climbing from just about above ground level, from about 500 feet, and they're coming, and they're rising. So I report to MacArthur Airport. I gave him my call sign. Um, Cessna 2314 Juliet Hotel. I have some traffic on my left side uh, below me and climbing, and the, and the air traffic controller says, oh, we can't see them on our radar. Uh, sometimes they're too low for us to pick them up. And I said, well, they're climbing. They're now in my 10 o'clock position. And I just keep steady. I hold my altitude at 1,800 feet or so, approaching the stacks. And as these things emerge out of the mist, I saw two eggs, two big eggs. That's the best description I can give you of these things. And they were one in front of the other, and they moved so fluidly in uniform motion that it almost appeared to me as if one was towing the other. You know, but there was no cable. If, that's how tight they were. You know, when airplanes fly together, you know, one will go a little hollow or a little rod. These things were like two eggs on a, on a line with the first egg pulling the other one, but there was no line. And they climbed up and sped up and crossed me like a T. They went right across the nose of my plane, and I think they crossed me at about 200 feet ahead of me, which is a very short distance. You know, I'm doing 110 miles an hour, 120 going that way. They zip by. So uh, we crossed the T, okay? So my airplane, you can put, do it with your right hand. Your right hand is your airplane. You're flying. And you cross the T with these two eggs. If you took two fingers and put them and cross around, cross the nose. So then the airplane crosses the T. So then I got to see the tail, right? So I saw the three-quarter. Then I saw the profile, side view. Then I flew past and I saw the tail view. And the most remarkable thing was that these things were egg-shaped, when seen from the side profile, and they were egg-shaped when seen from the tail end. So it was the same shape, except from the tail it looked like it was standing up on the long end, and then from the side it was an egg shape. had a very small cupola, little, tiny little, very little canopy. I couldn't even see uh, a, a person or a pilot. No propeller, no wings, no tail, ailerons, and once they passed me, they took off and crossed Long Island Sound in the direction of Bridgeport. I would say they disappeared in about seven seconds. But again, it was hazy. And then I continued on, and I didn't breathe a word. I didn't breathe a word to it of it to air traffic control because you never report UFOs. You want to get in trouble. You want to be ridiculed. That's why I tell people, you know, it's a waste of time to report UFOs to, you know, the FAA, 
the Air Force or the police because the lid on it is so tight that the first thing you get is skepticism. The next thing you get is ridicule because they don't really want to know. It's something that does not fit into their paradigm of reality. And so to protect themselves, their own minds, their own reality, they have to uh, be skeptical and deny you and uh, you know, debunk you, discredit you. So why bother? For me, the important thing is that you know. Because when it comes down to the nitty gritty, if you believe it, you'll be in a much better situation to deal with it than a person who is totally skeptical. Those are the people who lose it, who lose their minds, who lose their centers, go into panic. But that was one instance of uh, two real UFOs in broad daylight zipping by me. So I wrote this article called Two Eggs on a Roll, dot, 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 No Beacon, because air traffic control should have been able to see those craft in that area because every aircraft in that MacArthur Airport area MacArthur Airport, Republic Airport, Farmingdale, Long Island, um, is required by law to have a transponder sending out a signal. So even though air traffic control said they couldn't see them because they were at low altitude, they should have had a transponder beaming out uh, a signal to uh, you know pinpoint their positions, but they didn't. So this was something other. They were also stealth because air traffic control was sending out the radar beacon. They went right past my altitude. They went beyond me, and they couldn't be picked up by radar. So there is a stealth aspect to this technology that I was able to observe. And the other really most exciting, one of the most exciting adventures of my life was almost being hit by a meteor. And this was uh, an event that I will never, ever forget because it was spectacular. I was flying at night. I had been teaching in Boston. Uh, I taught a weekend seminar in Boston. And then I had a friend of mine uh, bring the plane up to Boston, uh, Hanscom Field. And I decided, hey, you know, it was a great weekend. I really don't want to get on a bus and ride hours. I'll fly home. So my friend, my co-pilot, my mechanic flew up with another ferry pilot, picked me up. And we get in this airplane. And we're flying at 9.30 at night over Connecticut near um, Waterbury, Oxford, Woodbury. And all of a sudden, it's pitch black. And all I can see are highway lights and um, street lights. And then I see a lake. And the lake looked like it's on fire. I look at the lake. And there was this light coming out from the lake that was so unusual. It had every color in it. It was red, it was yellow, it was green, it was blue, and it kept changing. And I said, my God, what is that? Did they figure out how to do fireworks underwater? You know, and I kept looking at it. Then the lake disappeared under the wing. I was flying a low wing plane, a Piper, similar to the one John F. Kennedy Jr. used to fly, except they had a tea tail. And so the, the lake disappears under the wing, so I can't see it. Then I turned my attention back to the front, and I'm flying at 6,000 feet. And all of a sudden, I can see the terrain. I can see the land. And it looked like blue and green tiger stripes were illuminating and coursing over the land. So I could see hills. And I could see what I thought were lakes, which were actually reservoirs. And I saw a stream. And I go, what's going on here? You know, and then I look to the left. And all of a sudden, 
I could see Long Island Sound glittering in the dark. And I could see Long Island like a big black mass. And then I could see the Atlantic Ocean glittering with light. Then I looked up and I saw something in the sky and I thought, I thought it was the sun. And I said to myself, my God, did I miss the dawn? You know what I mean? Your, your brain goes into cognitive dissonance. You're just trying to find a rational explanation for what this what's this. So I thought of Lindbergh flying across the Atlantic all night and the dawn coming up and then seeing, you know, the ocean. And I, that's why I said to myself, what, did I miss the dawn? Have I been flying all night and the sun's coming up? But of course it wasn't. It was still 9.30 at night. So I look again and I go, oh my God, that must be a supernova. And I look again to the front and I could see again the illumination. It was light. It was so bright that I could see the Atlantic Ocean, Long Island Sound, Long Island. And I was 50 miles away from Long Island. I was inland, you know, and, and, the, and the island and the sound itself between us. Then I look again and I saw this light drop twice. It dropped vertically like... It was reminded of a spider. If you've ever seen a spider drop, do two or three jumps on a, on a silk, silken strand, they'll drop, stop, drop, stop, and drop again. Or a, a soldier rappelling, you know, they jump off with the line, they stop, slow down, bounce off the, uh, the mountain or the cliff, and do another drop. Well, it dropped twice like that. And then I realized it wasn't a supernova. But then, and this is from about, my estimate would be that this happened about 100 miles away. And then in two bounds, two bounds, like the bouncing ball used to do in, in uh, cartoons in the 1930s. Boom, boom, two bounces. One, two, and all of a sudden it was going to hit my airplane. And I veer the airplane and I fly parallel to this light and it's coming. My buddy, my... Uh, co-pilot he was right in the back seat he said he saw this light coming and he said oh my god we're gonna die we're gonna have a mid-air collision this is a c c5a or some giant airplane we're gonna die and i maneuvered the plane and i saw this meteor streak by me it was about 75 feet away it was so hot that i could feel the heat coming through the plexiglass uh window it had a hundred foot long acetylene torch like white tail. It was pitch black. It had a ruby ring, a band around it, and the thing was spinning. Uh, if you look at your hand and clench your fist and look at your, your main knuckle, like the, the knuckle of your middle finger, it had a knuckle like that. It was ruby red, and it was turning around and turning around. And the ruby knuckle or bud was coming around and coming around. And then this voice said to me, don't look at the red. You're going to miss the rest of it. And when I looked at the rest of it, the top of it was engulfed in flames, but it was a green fire. And it was a green fire that had every hue of green from lime to Kelly green. And it seemed to me that it was so hot that the heat was holding the meteor up. But the most astonishing thing about this was to see the effect on the atmosphere ahead of the meteor. I saw two bow waves, I would say 100 feet and 150 feet in front of the meteor that were 
visible. I mean, it was. I guess it was ionized air, and it was opening up. The atmosphere was opening up before the meteor arrived. I said to myself, "This thing is so hot; it looks like the atmosphere is frightened of it." And the other thought that came to me was a vision of the movie The Ten Commandments, when Moses parts the waters and opens the waters, and they go like that. Well, the atmosphere was opening up before this meteor getting out of its way. And then I saw the black a plume of brown, ugly smoke coming out of it. I realized that was poison gas. And I said, man, if I fly into that, po- that plume of gas, we're dead. And if I fly into that acetylene torch tail, it's whoosh, gone. The wing is gone. You're dead. So I maneuvered the plane. I banked really steeply. And this was now going from a parabolic uh, arc into the vertical drop as it made its last drop. 6,000 feet is where I was. And it was doing the 6,000 foot down, straight down. So I, I banked the plane way, almost to 90 degrees. You know, I would say about 85. I flew around the tail and around the meteor and around the the black smoke so I was able to look down on it into the tail and it looked like a tornado a tornado of fire spinning around and sinking straight down into the woods of Connecticut and for the next um, well that happened in May I think it was May 1st until December November yeah, election day from uh, from May through November fourth, I believe it was the year two thousand. I went and I kept flying and looking for the landing zone, and I actually did finally uh, locate it and made two treks, uh, two treks in there, and was hoping to uh, to recover the meteor in two thousand one, but. Uh, but what happened was actually it did happen in 2001 and I kept pushing and pushing and uh, unfortunately 9-11 um, 9-11 occurred and ended the search and uh, ended my flying I actually have been flying that I'm sorry the bio that you read said 23 years but I've actually been flying since 1984 it was an old bio with a typo in it so that oh, was geez, really, making me look bad was, there no, no, I'm sorry. That was my fault. I sent you the, I sent you the, the, the text. I didn't check it. But anyway, that was a really once-in-a-lifetime experience. And you have a lot of experiences. I almost hit it here. Well, you're, well, defi- you're definitely someone we're going to have to bring back because I'm, I'm sure you got probably at least 15, 16 hours of, of further stories you could read. I'm going to get to another question here, Robert. This one comes from Corrine. And Corrine is asking, Robert, did you ever read Sedona Beyond the Vortex book? And if so, what did you think about it? I'm afraid I didn't read Sedona Beyond the Vortex. There's a lot of strange things. Wonderful things and strange things. People who go to Sedona fall in love with it. And I, I have a feeling, you know, Sedona looks more like Mars than any other place that I've ever seen. Arizona looks like Mars. And I think that people who have this Martian instinct tend to gravitate to to that region. Personally, I I don't really like deserts, and uh, I'm an ocean man. I could never live in a landlocked state. Sorry. I love to visit them, 
but I have to be near the ocean, and uh, I'm an Atlantean uh, man. Is, uh, I'm very fond of it, and I have to live near it. So, I'm sorry I didn't read Sedona, but I know that Sedona is a very highly charged place. As a matter of fact, many years ago, uh, I would say about 11 years ago, someone from Sedona, Arizona, sent me one of the best UFO photographs that I have ever seen in my entire life. And it was of a silver flying saucer. And it looked to me exactly like the flying saucer that is depicted by um, Bob Lazar and uh, right his friend uh, John Lear. It looked exactly like that one maneuvering through a canyon, you know. So, follow-up question from Corrine. She is asking, Robert, what are three things you know now as truth at this point of your life? Well, that's a great question. The first thing that I that came to my mind is that God exists. That's my. That's a truth for me. I don't care about anybody else. But I have had my my personal encounter, my personal conversations with uh, with God. And he is an ever-present being. Uh, he may be the master of the house that I was talking about. Um, there is good and evil. Second thing that I do know, there is good and evil in the universe, and it's not relative. I think that uh, relative um, mor moralism or relative morality is um, a trick of the devil, a trick of evil. I think we have human beings are, are endowed with something called a conscience. It can be turned off, unfortunately. It can be disabled, and I'm afraid that that's been done to a lot of our fellow Americans, our fellow citizens through the common core educational system. They have lost conscience. Um, but I do believe in that. I do believe that there is a good and evil. And the third thing is that we are all here engaged in a spiritual battle, a spiritual, a spiritual warfare between the forces of good and evil. And I believe that uh, the great proportion of mankind who has goodness at heart is God's secret weapon against evil. But evil tries to seduce human beings and to pervert us and that we must be ever watchful, mindful, of the intrusion of alien thoughts, alien ideas uh, into our psyches that we may take to be our own but have really been uh, implanted there. And so I say to people, you know, you know, reflect on your own thinking, reflect on the thought you're thinking right now or during the day, several times a day, and say to yourself, are these thoughts truly my own? Or are these thoughts that have been planted in my head by media, propaganda, or mind control? And the other one now, since I've seen over the last few years, it used to be that mind control operations worked to fool your intellect. They presented uh, false data to mislead you, misguide you, to trick your intelligence. But now, especially in the last four years, I've seen a new form of mind control manipulation 
that's involved in hijacking your emotional body. It's, a, it's to planting memes and triggers in you that will rile you up and make you mad and make you angry and make you hostile upon the mention of certain key words. The most powerful key word to trip this aberration or this aberrant hijacking of the emotional body is the simple word Trump. That has become a trigger word where people lose their minds, lose their sanity, lose their composure, turn into vitriolic, hate-filled beings. And my experience is that in the last year, I started to recognize this, that people who were friendly and amiable colleagues would say to me, hey, who are you voting for? And I said, uh, Trump. And then they change. They'd start yelling and cursing and screaming and trembling. Uh, and the tremor wasn't coming from the chest. It was coming from the belly. And it's like, wow, that is really deep-seated hatred. And what tripped this? So I, I've been watching the way the liberal media, particularly mm -hmm. CNN, CNN and MSNBC, but more CNN right. than any other, is working on an emotional manipulation of the viewer, which is more subtle than an intellectual deception or propaganda. And this has uh, become so widespread that people are feeling emotions and anger and hatred, which is not truly their own. And so now, instead of saying to people, you know, check out your thinking every once in a while, a couple of hours a day, every once in a while, and say, is this thought really my own? Now I caution people and I say to you, ask yourself, is this emotion that I'm feeling truly my own? Is it really my feeling or is it something that's a bit engendered in me, generated in me by the implantation of some hostile thought? And I see that more and more and people are succumbing to it and uh, it's a very dangerous thing that's all I've got to say let's get let's get to another question and originally we were talking about remote viewing at the top of this show Don wants yes. to know what is the difference in your opinion between lucid dreaming and astral travel and remote viewing okay I will say this uh, I talk in these terms remote viewing lucid dreaming and out of body experiences because when I teach the, my remote viewing class, which I, I will be teaching a seminar in, in April, uh, remote viewing. And when I do, I have certain books that I use as manuals for it. And one of them is called Journeys Out of the Body by Robert A. Monroe. Now, the difference between them all is this. In remote viewing, you're awake, you're conscious, you develop your, your, your skill and your target, you have an intention and it's wakeful and mindful. Lucid dreaming occurs while you're asleep. You can program yourself before you go to sleep to go to a certain destination, experience a certain thing, or see something. Or in, in me, I don't do that. I just let the faculty express itself. And it has amazed me many, many times. I have had experiences in lucid dream state where I experienced an airliner crash that happened in Toronto a few years ago during a lightning storm where the airliner ran off the runway and in, into off the runway into a ditch or you know, a veil and uh, caught fire but fortunately everyone 
uh, lived. Now, this was, I lived this thing. I was in this dream state, and I was scampering and running away from a fire and climbing up a hill, and there was ash and everything all over. I got to the top of the hill, the crest of the hill, and I was looking north, and I knew I was looking north because I knew that West Point was right up there, you know, relative Manhattan, West Point, that's looking north. And then I looked and I saw something that looked like an atomic bomb way, way north, you know, way beyond, way beyond West Point. And as this atomic bomb happened and lightnings were coming down on the sides of it and ash was falling from the sky, I heard this voice say, Fort Ticonderoga, just like that, Fort Ticonderoga. And I woke up startled and I said, and then... Um, I didn't wake up right away. Then I was by the side of a highway, and tractor trailers were blazing by. And I jumped up onto the door of a tractor trailer and grabbed hold, and the, the driver kept driving. He threw the door open, and I was swinging on the door and swung the door back in and climbed into the tractor trailer, and I was safe. And then I woke up, and I go, what the hell was that all about? And that's generally what, what I say when I have a, a lucid dream trying to fathom it, trying to understand it. So now this was such a powerful dream that it, it bugged me all morning. This happened early in the morning at about, I think, 6.30 a.m. And then I got up at 10, and it was so vivid that at about 2, two o'clock in the afternoon, I said, I better write this up, and I'm going to send it to my friends because I have a network of psychic friends and individuals, uh, and we share ideas, and we sometimes have projects together. So I write it up and I'm typing it up and I'm and I'm sending it and I, I had a situation where I could have my computer and my monitor and a big mirror in front of me that reflected the TV behind me, big TV, so I could watch TV while I was at the computer and I look up and CNN starts to report that an airliner had run off the runway at Toronto Airport during a lightning storm. And there was a fire and an explosion. And I look at the television, and the explosion and the fire was going up, and it looked like a mushroom cloud, and the lightning was coming down. And then it said that the airliner had run off the runway and gone down into a, an embankment, into a ditch, and the people were jumping out and scurrying up the hill. And then it said that a highway runs by Toronto Airport, and many truck drivers and tractor-trailer drivers started to stop their trucks by the side of the road and scampered down to help rescue rescue the people that uh, were jumping out of the airplane. And they were taking them into the tractor-trailers and giving them shelter there while emergency crews tried to put out the fire. Fortunately, not a single person died. And um, the airplane was lost, but there's no loss of life. And then I heard an interview with uh, one of the survivors, and I've never forgotten his name. His name was Raul Bauman. And Raul Bauman starts to describe what he did to escape the plane. He said, ah, that plane was on fire. I jumped up, and I kept scurrying up the hill, and I had to get away from the fire. And then I got up to the top of the hill, and then some truck drivers helped me. So... My take on this is this, that I see these things happening through other people's eyes. And it may be a person with whom I may have some kind of 
blood relationship, you know, really far-fetched. I mean, they say seven, there are six degrees of separation between all of us. So we may share a common gene pool that has certain attributes which involve psychism. And now I would like to go back. I said earlier I was going to talk about this. And it's about a gene called VMAT-2. The VMAT-2 gene is believed to be a gene that hardwires certain human beings for very high-level spiritual insights or mystical experiences, you know, and that when this gene is expressed in a person, they are extremely psychic and uh, prone to have psychic, spiritual, and mystical experiences. But if this gene is suppressed or neutralized, a person will not have those experiences. And the way I found out about it is that a few years ago, someone went to the Pentagon to propose the uh, creation of a virus that they call fundamental vaccine, which was, according to them, a genetically modified vaccine that would be sprayed on fundamentalist fanatics in the Muslim world that would make them stop believing in their mystical experiences because it would shut down the VMAT-2 gene. And I thought, and I was asked uh, to investigate this by by a, a very, very uh, prestigious doctor uh, who had very, very close ties to uh, the intelligence community. And he was very concerned. And he said, Bob, this is really terrible. If this is true, I really... The person that leaked it uh, was very good at covering his tracks and I was never able to track him. But the video is on YouTube and it's called FunVax and for Fundamental Vaccine. So I said to the doctor, you know, this is insane because what you're attacking is the gene that is, ex- is responsible for the belief system of every individual, whatever it is that they believe, you know? So a scientist may not be a mystic, but he may have this VMAT-2 gene, which inspires him to science, which inspires him to believe that science is the way, that science is the, the, the path to higher consciousness. Now, if this thing is sprayed by aerosol and spreads, anybody who breathes it in is going to get the fundamental virus uh, and will stop believing in whatever it is that they did believe. It's not going to attack just people who believe in religion. It's attacking the belief, the modality for the belief system and its expression. So there are a lot of crazy things being done in the name of science. And I think we have to guard ourselves against them. Because there's definitely, you know, in in World War II, Churchill came out uh, with a speech to warn Britain and the Allies and the Western world of the rise in Nazi Germany of a perverse science, an evil science that was being turned against humanity. And I think that 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 warning is still pertinent today because very terrible things are being done in the name of science in genetics in biochemistry and pharmacology and our people America, Canada 
the human race are being victimized by this evil science which is trying to seize as I said earlier not just control of our minds and our beliefs and our opinions and ideas through propaganda but our very emotions and our behaviors themselves and artificial intelligence I believe has become a threat to humankind because we are surrendering uh, we are surrendering free will and our individual choices to machines to make the choices for us and I think that is a path toward uh, annihilation and I, I recommend a movie called Colossus The Forbin Project to it's on YouTube it's about how artificial intelligence takes over the world one more question before we get into your Antarctica news because we only got about 18 minutes left with you the question comes from Darren. And Darren is asking, Robert, do you think that President Trump has the potential to be the disclosure president? Yes, I do. I do. Because um, he's a very straightforward person, you know. That's, that's the thing that people hate about him, you know. And that's the thing that I do respect about him. Whatever he believes... You know, what he really thinks, he says. And he doesn't uh, mince words. So I do believe that he has the potential to be a disclosure president. And he's working on many, many things that need disclosure. You know, he's... Uh, a very big thing is human trafficking. This is what has the liberal, uh, progressive media up in arms. They feel really threatened. His, his vow to drain the swamp is a serious one and part of that uh, stagnation that, that uh, corruption of Washington involves um, uh, human trafficking and a pedophilia network that was exposed more than 25 more than 30 years ago but has been suppressed by the liberal media but we know it's true you know back in the late 80s and early 90s you know my friend John Graham and people in England were exposing the pedophilia rings and nobody believed them. And then there was the Franklin scandal here in America. Uh, a fellow named Nick Bryant has written a comprehensive book on, on the subject. And it exposed that uh, a very large number of politicians were um, part of this pedophilia network. And it was suppressed. There was a Discovery Channel special that was done on it, and it was not allowed to be broadcast. But now we know that it's all true. What do we have in the last couple of years? We have Dennis Hastert is doing time right now for having abused a uh, page boy in in the Congress. Uh, Jerry Sandusky, you know the uh, the coach at that uh, Pennsylvania college, Penn State, yeah. Penn State, and it just goes on and on, and now this Pizzagate is a very serious thing, and now um, Ivanka Trump is involved in this, and I don't know if people have noticed it, but you have press conferences, and the press is deflecting from the really important issues that were mentioned, and they're all screaming about Russia, 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 they're all screaming about Trump uh, making up stories, and making a lot of noise. But for me, 
one of the most important things of the last three speeches. Uh, well, there's two speeches by the president and uh, two press conferences by Spicer. And in each of them, the subject of human trafficking has been brought up. And the president is out to stop human trafficking. As a matter of fact, it's a major story in the newspapers today about his latest move. Right. And I think that this is a big part. There is one, a perversion there. One other question before we get to Antarctica, because this one I kind of let loose here for a while. Do you think when it comes to remote viewing or lucid dreaming that GMOs, fluoridated water, food additives, restrict or prohibit your ability to do so? This comes from John at Hashtag Space Out Radio. Absolutely. Absolutely. I said that this faculty, which I believe is a human survival faculty that had guided mankind for a million years to arrive here, that it has been intentionally suppressed and, you know, they do everything in their power to make you disbelieve your own mind. And as I said, the master of the house is always there to warn us. I have my, had my life saved and I've, I have saved the lives of others because I had remote viewing visions of coming events and I modified my behavior. I changed certain things since the, the remote viewing experience told me that I was going to go through this disaster. And this was a car crash that occurred in 2002. And I had a really vivid experience of being in a multi-car crash, pieces of cars all over the highway, people dying and screaming. It was so vivid I could hear the growling and the yelling of the tractor trailer, not the, uh, the, uh, the tow truck drivers. You know, wrenching up the cars and screaming at people and, and I said to myself in the dream oh man God is showing me this is coming and I can't get out of it I'm going to have to go through with it through this and so in the dream I had the accident had been caused by a white car that cut me off and caused the accident so I was going to Brooklyn uh, at Christmas time broke three rules don't go to Brooklyn on the weekend don't travel at Christmas time and don't travel on the solstice Three rules that I broke that one time because it was an important celebration that I was going to. So I said to myself, well, you know, it was a white car that caused the accident. I drive a white car. Maybe if I don't take a white car, we can change this equation. So instead, I borrowed uh, a van, my mother's van, which was a gold-colored van. And this event unfolds in a six-car crash intentionally caused by a guy in a white car, in a white SUV. He intentionally caused this accident that, you know, made an accordion of six cars. But because I had driven the van and not my sports car, in which I would have been killed, uh, we survived. And now here's the remarkable thing. The thing unfolded. I had the crash. And bang, I hit. I slowed the car down enough for us to survive it. Then I got hit from the rear end and lifted up, and like this, snap. It happened, the crash happened, and I said to myself, well, I was here, I was here last Tuesday night. Okay, it's done. I had already experienced it, you know, the terrible part of it, the death on the highway. And here we were, and nobody was dead. 
So I got out of the car. I put down my cell phone. I called the emergency. I called for an ambulance. Told the cars behind me, get off, go off the exit. Nobody's going to be moving around here because it was a pretty wild accident up a ramp that was tapering into one lane. It's really crazy. But that saved my life. And I had the experience of saving somebody else's life in Hamburg when I had a similar dream about another white van that exploded in, in flames. And I didn't know why I was dreaming about this. The next night I went to dinner with a famous, uh, very well-known German actress. And uh, at the end of the dinner, she said, hey, can I give you fellas a ride home? And uh, I said, sure, because we were in Hamburg. You know, it's not like New York or Toronto with a lot of public transit. So we accepted the ride. She drives up in the van that I saw the night before. And oh, my God. And um, so I said the next day to my friend Peter, listen, we just met this lady. I know she's going to think it's strange, but I have to talk to her. Please, can you make a meeting with her? So he set up the meeting, and I went over, and I said, listen, Marie, I, I saw this. I want you to take your van to go have a check by a mechanic because this was a terrible thing that I saw. And she said, okay, I will. She knew I was serious. She says, because I pick up my boy and his friends from school every day in that van, so I'm going to take it. So she took it to the mechanic. And he said, lady, why did you bring this car in here today? He said, this man from New York told me that he had a dream. He said, you know, you're really lucky. You could have been killed. If you'd gotten on the Autobahn with this car, you could have been killed. The transmission is about, about to fall out and, and just, and it really can't be repaired. It can't be repaired. My, so that's my, why I believe it. My friend, I'm going to cut you off right there, and I don't normally do that, and I apologize. That's that's the Canadian in me apologizing. But we only got about seven minutes left with you, and I wanted to get to the Antarctica news. Right. Okay, folks, I want you to keep an eye on Antarctica. This is Something's happening in Antarctica that is uh, earth-shaking. And many years ago, 2008, as a matter of fact, I made a, met a naval officer who told me that... Um, the U.S. military has a huge base in Antarctica that is monitoring celestial events but also interacting with extraterrestrials. And that they're using it as a jump-off point for um, joint ventures, let's call them, between our military and extraterrestrials in venturing into outer space. And in recent years, but in particular in the last year, they've discovered... 3,500 species of new bacteria in the inside that lake, Lake uh, Vostok, which was buried for millions of years under ice. And in the last few months, major, major political leaders have made secret trips to Antarctica. And a cave was discovered in Antarctica that's an, that's an artificial cave. It's called Turtle Cave. And while exploring Turtle Cave, which has a weird entrance that looks like it has a, a metallic cover. Don't mind the tractor trailers going by my house, folks. They're just here to help me. Anyway, it has a cover, a lid on it that looks like half of a flying saucer or half of a German Nazi helmet covering the entrance for that reason. It looks like a shell, so it's called Turtle Cave. So while exploring this region, I have discovered what I consider to be the largest meteor impact crater um, ever revealed in Antarctica. It's 1,700 feet in diameter, and it's got the most unique feature in that 
it looks like a perfectly scalloped semicircle of ice on the, the top part and the impact crater and the rest of it, the circle is, is earth and snow that is avalanche down. But I have never seen anything like this and I'll be revealing it in UFO Digest um, in coming weeks. I have a lot of other articles to publish before it. But I want to make this announcement that there's a great, uh, great Antarctic meteor impact crater in that area, not far from the region where the uh, Nazis were supposed to have their famous secret bases. And I think it, it's an indicator that something is approaching Earth from the southern hemisphere. It's something that perhaps it's a huge meteor shower or asteroids or something like that that's got a lot of people worried. And the other thing are the implications of the discoveries in Antarctica. As Antarctica is melting, they have discovered that it was once tropical. They have found peat and moss and ferns that were flash frozen. As a matter of fact, if you go to my Facebook page, I have a documentary there that has these details. It's, uh, it's called The Secrets of Antarctica. And you'll see scientists pulling up flash frozen plants where the cells and the shape and the plant is still intact hundreds of thousands of years after, as they say, flash frozen and not melted again. So I believe that Antarctica is one of the great mysteries and something that uh, is going to reveal a big change in human history um, in, in coming months. And it may be Donald Trump, who is the disclosure president. And there's a lot of UFO activity down in Antarctica. And I do believe that the Nazis uh, survived. Uh, the high-tech Nazis survived, transplanted themselves to Antarctica. And that the Fourth Reich has been in concert with extraterrestrials who were trying to help them during World War II in the hopes that uh, they would bring out the New World Order. But fortunately, we had our spiritual warriors, warriors on our side, and we were able to defeat the science of evil with uh, a Christian science that kept its, uh, its morality a little more so than the Nazis did. So Antarctica is very important, and more discoveries are coming out of Antarctica on a month monthly basis. But I'm very happy to share this, and I will publish the photo of uh, this great meteor impact crater. As I said, 1,700 feet in diameter. It's about a third of a mile. And unique in the structure of this ice, this cliff of ice, a semicircle of ice that's got about a 100-foot drop. And uh, as if it were, were cut with, a, with an ice saw. It's remarkable. Any we'll, other questions? We'll, we only got about 90 seconds with you here. So okay. I'm, I'm curious, with Antarctica, is this something that every global politician knows about, or is this something that only a few are trying to keep secret? I think it's uh, primarily uh, the United States and uh, NATO, NATO allies that uh, are involved in this. Russia surely, Russia surely knows about this, too, since they're... They're part of the big uh, exploration there. I would like to say that if anyone's interested in uh, joining me, I'm going to be at the New York New York Life New Life Expo 
in New York City, uh, March 17th, 18th, and 19th, so St. Patrick's Day weekend. If you make your way down to New York, I will be part of the UFO panel on the 19th, but I'll be there probably on Saturday for some hours. And if you're interested in remote viewing or Tai Chi, Chuan, Tai Chi healing methods, I'll be there for consultations. And otherwise, 10 o'clock on uh, March 19th, Richard Dolan and I and several other UFO uh, specialists will be part of the UFO panel there at the New Life Expo at the Warwick Hotel in New York City. So that's my plug for today. And uh, awesome. it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. So well, we're, we're going to have to do this again. Last thing I want to say is hello to Emerson in British Columbia and Leanne in British Columbia and Michael's, Michael in uh, Ontario. I'm going across the country because I have a lot of friends there, and I really am absolutely. Happy to have and and if they're listening from British Columbia, I want to let them know, your friends know, that Spaced Out Radio is from the Caribou region of British Columbia. So make sure you tune in, support that local show, help spread the word, because we are Canada's only show that goes seven days a week in these topics, night after night. So it's a good one. Robert Morningstar, thank you for being on Spaced Out Radio tonight. Really appreciate your time. Coming up in the next hour, Everett Themer and Eric Markham will join us. We're going to continue with the great talk from everything that is scientific to paranormal, and we're going to get on in on it. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio. I am your host, Dave Scott. We'll be back right after this. The SOR Sightlines is a place for you to find answers to your strange experiences. Hi there, this is Mike Schmidt. If you have had an encounter with ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, ETs, or anything else that doesn't make sense, head to spacedoutradio.com and file a Sightlines report. All information you give is 100% confidential, and I will personally help you find the answers you need. SOR Sightlines, your answers are a click away. Have you got your Cosmic Passport? If you need one, tune in to Cosmic Passport on Spaced Out Weekend. This is Elizabeth Anglin, ET experiencer, spirit medium, and host of Cosmic Passport. Each weekend, I'll be bringing you interviews and support from other paranormal experiencers and the best in intuitive spiritual guidance from across the globe. It's all happening starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern, on spacedoutradio.com. Hi there. I'm Butch Wachowski, lead investigator with Euphorcop. On the final Monday of every month, you can listen to me and host Dave Scott on Spaced Out Radio's Strange Days. We're going to get to the heart of the matter when it comes to what's happening out there. People are seeing and experiencing things from ET contact to Bigfoot, and I want to hear about it. Your experiences are what we investigators need to help solve these unknown mysteries. So tune in at spacedoutradio.com to the final Monday of every month from Butch Wachowski's Strange Days. Visit purpleplates.com today. For over 40 years, the Purple Energy Plates have been delivering amazing results for their many customers. Inspired by the great genius Nikola Tesla, the harmony, healing, and energetic effects of the plates have proven over and over to be beneficial and often miraculous to thousands of customers. With their money-back guarantee and the many benefits, how can you afford not to get one? Check their site for daily specials and choose from their many energy products. You won't be sorry. Visit them today at purpleplates.com for mind, body, and spirit. And expect a miracle. This is your medium, Joanna, from Spaced Out Weekend, Two Mediums and a Large. 
I would love it if you would come and join us with host James Tyson every other Sunday on Spaced Out Weekend. Together, we will take your calls and your questions live. Our goal is to provide you with a positive outlook on deep questions that you may have. Questions regarding love, relationships, money, or whatever else is on your mind. Come and check us out at spacedoutradio.com. Have you checked out the SOR Spacewire at spacedoutradio.com yet? Every day we post the latest stories regarding the weird, strange, and completely unbelievable. From cryptid and UFO sightings to the conspiracy world, we tackle it all. Hi there, I'm Eric Markham, Space Out Radio's news director for the SOR Spacewire. And if you have a story, I want to hear it. Email me at news at spaceoutradio.com. Patrolling the Pacific Northwest, we are always on the lookout for the strange and unassuming stories that real people are experiencing. Hi, I'm Vincent Zunza from Pacific North Weird. Me and Alexandra Sullivan have teamed to bring to you those odd stories that never seem to make it into the mainstream. Stories so weird that we'll leave you scratching your head wondering, is this real? It's as real as it gets with Pacific North Weird. You can watch our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. Become more intimate and interactive with Spaced Out Radio. Join our Space Travelers Club with your new membership. For $5 a month, we'll provide you with special access to the website, monthly prize draws from books to psychic readings, along with monthly newsletter, private interviews, and more. Sign up today to be part of Spaced Out Radio's experience. Looking for a place to advertise at a very reasonable cost? Look no further than Spaced Out Radio. SpacedOutRadio.com has an advertising tab that you can click to check out our daily, weekly, and monthly packages to play on the radio or our website, including social media. From commercial spots to banners, we have it all. Check out our competitive pricing today. Don't have time to listen to Spaced Out Radio Live? Wherever you are, the car, the office, the shower, or even if you're traveling, we're right here for you. Each Spaced Out Radio show can be found on iTunes, TuneIn, and on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. It's the perfect way for you to catch up on our shows. For more information, just head over to our website, spacedoutradio.com, and tune in to us today. You hear footsteps in the empty room above you. A rocking chair begins rocking by itself. Don't be afraid of the things that go bump in the night. Reach for Spirit Story Box. The iPhone app the Huffington Post UK called the only ghost hunting app you will ever need. Spirit Story Box. The spirits are telling their stories. Are you listening? Strange creatures lurking in the night, the sounds of wood knocking in the forest, odd happenings right out of a fictional world. These are the reports I love. Hi there, this is author Ronald Murphy, and I would love it if you'd join me and Spaced Out Radio host Dave Scott the second Wednesday of every month on our journey into the unknown land of cryptozoology at spacedoutradio.com. From Mothman to Frogman and everything in between, hey, they don't call me the crypto guru for nothing. Did you know that Spaced Out Radio runs seven days a week? Hi, it's James Tyson from Spaced Out Weekend. Every Saturday and Sunday night, starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, 
midnight Eastern, you can join me and my guests for some great chatter about what's going on out in the universe or even in that dark part of the basement you really don't want to go back into. Well, let's find the answers to your experiences together. So come on up to Uncle Jimbo's cabin on the weekend. For more information, look us up at spacedoutradio.com. The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio with Dave Scott. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio and hashtag Spaced Out Radio. And on Facebook, Spaced Out Radio Show. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the final hour of Space Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Good to have you along for this wonderful ride around SOR land. It is fantastic. It is fun. And we're glad you are with us. Tomorrow night on the show, Thomas Seawood is going to join us. We are going to talk Bigfoot from a First Nations perspective and see what this creature is all about. 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time at spacedoutradio.com on the WQEE Rock the Key down in Noonan, Georgia. The United Public Radio Network live on 107.7 FM in New Orleans and over 160 countries around the world. Renegade Talk Radio in Las Vegas and on Revolution Radio. Remember, the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Bill Cardwell has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Prianti Penultimate. Prianti Penultimate is your password. Make sure you use it wisely, space travelers, because it is your password for the night and to kick off the week. If you want to follow us on social media, just like our new friend Deb Matt did, all you got to do is go to spacedoutradio.com or you can use the hashtag spacedoutradio. At Spaced Out Radio on Twitter. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn. Download this show and others on iTunes. We are also on Stitcher, TalkStream Live, RadioGuide.fm, and our website is spacedoutradio.com, where we have a plethora of features for you, including joining the SOR Space Travelers Club for just $5 a month. Notice I put the periods in between them. Eric Markham and Everett Themer from. The Encounter Online are with us here on Space Out Radio. The Encounter Online, if you haven't noticed, is what we have changed the SOR Spacewire's name to as we look to bring in a plethora of journalists who are going to be writing quality paranormal supernatural type journalism. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi, Dave. Hi, Eric. Hey, Everett. Hi, Dave. Hi, Everett. Hi, Eric. There we go. Now that we got the introductions out of there. You know, before normally when I have you guys on, we kind of break down what the guest previous was talking about. We're going to get to that. But at first here, this is really our first opportunity to introduce everyone to the encounter, Everett. 
It's at spaceoutradio.com. We are currently, you know, working to make everything really, really brand new. We're going to be adding fresh new pieces of journalism regarding the paranormal. Everett, why don't you take it from there? Oh, you know, this is something I'm really excited about. It's taken us a while to roll this out, but we're putting pieces together. We're getting writers together. We're growing our team, and we're going to take a completely fresh approach to the paranormal. Um, We're going to be treating it much like you treat the topics with your mainstream journalism background. We're going to treat these topics with a mainstream approach and a research-based approach. We're going to really dig in depth and hopefully educate and turn the paranormal community on its ear a little bit and, and really shock them and really surprise them. And what's the purpose for doing that for our listeners? I know the purpose, but but in, in reality, I, I think the big reason why I'm asking that question is for a lot of people out there who who are looking for some sort of paranormal-type journalism, it's difficult to find out there. It is, and that's why we're doing this. That is the purpose. These are important topics. There are a lot of things going on out there that people don't understand, and there is research going on, but it all sort of it gets buried in this muck of, I don't want to say amateurish journalism, but this, this, this attitude of look at me, I did this. And the story is always kind of secondary. We're going to bring the stories back to the forefront and treat them with respect and, and look at them from both sides. Some things people may be unhappy if that we find some people will, you know, be happy with some of the research. We're going to go down the middle of the road and and look at both sides and not come at them from a, oh, this has to be this way point of view. So it's really exciting kind of behind the scenes. I know that sometimes it seems like it takes a long time that we talk about these things, but this is going to be a totally fresh approach that's going to treat these topics with respect and a journalistic skill that's really lacking in in a lot of the writing out there in the paranormal field. And one thing that I'm excited about is to get Eric Markham, our resident scientist, a little bit more involved with everything because Eric is probably one of the smartest dudes that I have ever met. And with his new role on the encounter online not only will he be helping you out with editing and looking over stories and finding stories but he's going to bring more of a scientific view on everything that we we do and eric how important is that for you to get that opportunity to bring in the scientific effort and background that really needs to happen in this field because there really seems to be a real lack thereof when it comes to these topics exactly i i always hear how science is always anti i get what what i'd say anti-fringe or anti anything out of the norm and by and large that's true but where i have had the classic scientific training and degree 
I have also had the experiences that don't fit in that framework. So <laughs> it's very important to me to look at this stuff and, you know, find the science in it because there's just, there's gotta be something there. Too many people are seeing the same things or encountering the same things I have. And there's gotta be a way to quantify it. Now, when you talk quantify, are you talking about just trying to prove or disprove theory out there, or are you talking about trying to hit every angle to try and prove what is actually going on? Not so much prove as... I guess what I'm trying to accomplish is gathering hard data so that people... Mainstream researchers can't say, well, it's not reproducible or some kind of, you know, they, they dismiss it out of hand because it doesn't fit within their little paradigm. And I'm saying if it exists, then they're, you know, to quote a Star Trek a Star Trek line, nothing unreal exists. There's got to be a core of truth here that we just, I don't know, I think people get caught up in trying to catch the EVP and, you know, get that picture and they're ignoring what's happening when it's, when the, they're ignoring the occurrence itself. I think that it's easy to get caught up in the safari mentality, but then, you know, so what? You've got a picture. I can make any ghost picture I want with my computer. You know, they've been doing fake ghost pictures since two days after the camera was invented. We need to have some, you know, just some baseline data. What's going on when these uh, events occur? Whether it's, uh, you know, trying to find out, maybe get a tissue sample from a Bigfoot. Whether it's trying to see what atmospheric disturbances occur when a UFO is in the area. Uh, what happens in a room when a, a shadow person or a ghost is present. And I, I think that's gotten lost in the shuffle. And that's what I'm endeavoring to, to bring forward is... Okay, we had an app, say, case in point, we had an apparition. This is what happened in the local environment. And then once we figure out what's going on in the local environment, we've got data that we can look at and try and figure, you know, what happened. You know, what, caught, what can cause this parameter to change just because this, so, you know, incorporeal, entity appeared you know if it appears if we can see it if it's interacting with our environment then we know that there is some kind of matter there and that's what i'm you know that's what i'm looking at that's what i'm trying to get some of this maybe the occurrence itself would not be reproducible but 
what's happening during the sighting or what's happening when the, the spirit is in the room, that part is reproducible. It might take, you know, several people taking my research and going out with it to corroborate and add to it. But that's, you know, that's where I'm at. Well, everybody can start looking in at spaceoutradio.com, the encounter online. It's something we're working very hard for. Gentlemen, let's get into what Robert Morningstar was saying in regards to Antarctica. Everett, we'll start with you on this one. Do you believe that there is actually secret military slash UFO bases on the only continent on this planet that is remotely viewed with people very few people have ever been there what do you think i really don't think that there's anything ufo related there i think it's a convenient location i think it makes a good story but i think that there are too many other places that it would make make more sense to have you know something actually going on um I, I just I, I I look at some of the evidence and it looks compelling, and then all of a sudden I kind of go back and forth a little bit. But ultimately, the bottom line for me is no, I don't think there's anything going on down there. Well, it would be a good place to hide something, Everett. I mean, so to write it off that nothing's happening, who knows? It's it's a safe place to hide any type of UFO contact. But on the flip side, they're doing a great job out at Area 51. True. And again, like I said, I do go back and forth. I I, I think ultimately, though, for me anyway, right now with the evidence the way it is, I think it's just a compelling story. Eric Markham, what do you believe? Well, I think it's a convenient place because, as you said, there you know it's not a place you're going to get to easily. I mean, the private citizen is not, unless you're mega wealthy, you're not going to hop a plane, a boat, or whatever and go to Antarctica. So you can actually say anything you want about Antarctica, and how are you going to verify it? I mean, you know, it's, it's a little too remote and convenient for spinning yarns, I think. Hey, I'd like nothing more than for them to find something there. But I'm kind of with effort on this. I'm I'm very skeptical about all this activity in Antarctica. It's a little bit too much like a H.P. Lovecraft story, the way they keep bringing stuff out. You know what? I look at it, and I'm going to have some fun with this topic here for a moment. I look at it as, have you noticed how many types of theories have come out ever since the original Transformer movie? Where Megatron was originally found in Antarctica before getting, you know, built into the Hoover Dam. And, you know, there's people who have said UFOs have been over Hoover Dam stealing energy and, and so on and so forth. Now we have what's buried in Antarctica. Is there remote bases there? Did Hitler build a base there? You know, let's, let's also remind ourselves that, you know, it's the coldest place on the planet, pretty much. And 
you're not going to get a lot done. If for people who have never spent time in minus 20 below Celsius temperatures, okay, which is around minus 15, minus 16 Fahrenheit. Okay, and then you get into that minus 40 degrees Celsius, which equates to minus 40 Fahrenheit. You're not doing a lot of things there. Okay, they would have to build one hell of a big base and structures pretty much like what you see at an airport in order to, you know, make sure that that, you know, they have some sort of heat going on. It's crazy to think for me that we are doing this in Antarctica. I just don't buy it. Well, and you'd also have to consider that you have to build that base on ice, on and in ice. So there is a tremendous amount of building an infrastructure that you would have to create and build just to make this possible. This is more than just building a hangar to hide a UFO in. This is essentially building a hangar within a big block of ice. And that just seems, that seems like an awful lot of effort to go through. Well, the other option is what if they're building it under the ice? Okay, then isn't the average depth of the ice on Antarctica about, what, is it four miles, Eric? Yeah, something to that. Uh, but they're, they've built, I mean, oh my goodness, Australia has a has Davis Station. Uh, Argentina has Deception Station. Uh, you know, Japan, there's a ton, you know, there's a ton of permanent bases up there that have already, you know, been in existence for several, you know, decades. So it's within our engineering to do so. Uh, I'm trying to remember my uncle. I had an uncle that was a Navy weather officer, and he did uh, a, a stint at what they call Operation Deep Freeze, and I cannot remember if that's Antarctica or the Arctic. But, you know, it's a, he became quite a pool player because there wasn't anything to do but shoot pool and all their waste goes into these big 55-gallon steel drums and they would, for entertainment, they would burn off one of these drums till it exploded. So it, it's not the kind of place you go for fun and games. No. No, and like I said, if you haven't experienced temperatures like that it's going to be very very difficult to do anything because i know up here okay they shut down the school buses at minus 37 degrees they shut down work at minus 50 and sometimes it does get there antarctica is pretty damn cold and i just don't see them having that now andrew we like to call him Aussie Andy around here because he's from Australia. And, you know, he lives in the future from where we are here in British Columbia, Canada. He says, I'm going to have to disagree with the SOR panel. I believe ancient civilization has been found there. 
Eric, what do you think? It it's plausible. I mean, like I said, I would love for there to be a discovery like that. I mean, they have found the the Earth tipped on its axis at one point, and I I don't know how many thousands of years ago. So it's entirely possible if there was a civilization there once the axis tipped, and they if they didn't have any warning that you could have a flash frozen you know, arcologies and, you know, probably some kind of flora. Maybe the people got out in time and you wouldn't find bodies. But, you know, it's plausible that there's something up there. They found things in the Arctic that weren't supposed to be there. So you never know. I mean, that's part of the fun of this whole topic is we don't know. And it's always, uh, it's, it's sort of a treasure hunt to see if you can find that, you know, is is that lost civilization buried under miles of ice? It, it gives us something to think about. Mm-hmm. I like John's post here at hashtag Spaced Out Radio. He says, Area 51 might have been legit at first, but there's nothing there now. It's a decoy. Everett, what do you think? I would agree with that, I think. I think... I'm sure by now, I mean, I think even Wright Patterson is probably not what it used to be. If we have aircraft, alien aircraft, my personal opinion is they're they're somewhere where we haven't even thought about yet. You know, Dulce, uh, all these places are nice to talk about and go look at, but the fact is sometimes it's easier to hide something in plain sight. And I think that if we have alien aircraft, we're missing the location. I, kind of, I tend to agree because when, when Area 51 was first developed, we didn't have spy satellites that could read the, the time on your wristwatch on your wrist from space. So I think... Anything that's extremely covert is underground somewhere. Out of the, you know, out of the prying, you know, out of be, out of view of the prying eyes from space. You just, you know, Area 51, for what it is, is has been obsolete since probably the mid-80s, I would think, is about when the resolution on these cameras started getting to where, you know, the Russians could peer down and see what was going on. They have bought up all the land around Area 51, so I think there's something going on, but I think it's our homegrown, you know, like whatever's going to come out behind the stealth fighter or something like that. I don't believe that the alien spacecraft and all that are there anymore, if they ever were. I think that's all been moved Cheyenne Mountain or something, you know, it, it's somewhere deep. But if and the truth is that, oh, oh, excuse me, the, the truth is that the government needs a place to, for a better lack of word, play. They need a place like Area 51. We can say it's obsolete for what we're talking about, but there are a lot of defense technologies that are still being developed that 
if you and I and the general public knows about them, that means that China knows about them and North Korea knows about them. So the government does need a little bit of a, a place to play and, and have some secrets. I agree. I do agree. Yes. I just, like I said, I think what you see coming out of Area 51 is prototype testing for what we're designing, not, and some of that might be back engineered technology, but so far there hasn't been, you know, really there hasn't been anything come out since what the stealth fighter and stealth bomber. So, you know, what's going on out there? Here's the thing we do know, you know about thing, area. Here's the thing we do know about Area 51. We do know that every day, a couple times a day, the Janet Jets are flying in and out of McCarran Airport in downtown Las Vegas. They are making a trip somewhere. We do know, thanks to people like Bob Lazar, that S4 does exist deep in a mountain, which they could hide, which is off from the main base. I believe it's about 10 miles from the main base. It's right in the middle of Nellis Air Force Range where nobody is allowed to be, and they keep buying up property. So I'm I'm a firm believer that there still are good secrets out there outside of what we know, because the best thing to do is hide something in plain sight. Well, that is true. I mean... To an extent, but by the same token, if you put all your eggs in one basket, then you, the chance of observing your secrets are, are greater. So the, I, I know there's something going on there. Like you said, the jets are flying in. There's people working there, but I think the mission has probably changed over the last 20 years by what what's going on out there. You know... Here again, we don't know. <laughs> it's it's one of those we'll never have all the answers until they throw the doors open and say, "Hey, guess what?" And I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime. Oh no, I think it's something that will be a secret for a very long time. There's no reason for them to come out with anything out there. But let's face it, you know, you drive along Area 51, you go past the black box the black mailbox and you start making that ride you know and the minute you get close you're being watched whether it's by the camo dudes whether it's by you know helicopters flying over and buzzing you making sure that they know who is around and who is not so there's a lot of things going on there that we just don't know about and i still think there's extraterrestrial product there if we can call it that sure the united states has hidden bases everywhere look at my tinfoil hat conspiracy that mh flight 380 is sitting at diego garcia it's never been found and uh mary's or marie's friend ron is asking i mean you look at the aurora the aurora program which was supposed to shut down or what we believe shut down the sr-71 project for days on end, at exactly the same time, there was earthquakes coming out of Nevada towards California, registering around 1.4 on the Richter scale, heading towards the Pacific Ocean. So is that where the home of the Aurora is? What are your thoughts, Everett? It certainly could be. Um, 
to an extent, I think it makes sense. I mean, they do have the infrastructure there already to test aircraft. Um, it is remote, but that doesn't mean that there's anything alien or UFO related to that. It could simply be the next step in our aviation program. And again, the government has a right to test these things in secret. It's a waste of taxpayer, excuse me, a waste of taxpayer dollars to go through all the effort to develop these things and have other countries know about them before we've even had a chance to use them. I mean, that's the whole point of the defense industry is to always have the upper hand. Absolutely. And that's how they are able to figure out what is going on. Marie is asking, Dave, what are your thoughts on Aurora? I believe it's a great product. I think it's out there. I think it's flying. I think it's somewhere in the Nevada desert, hiding. Maybe they have a leaf over top of it just to make sure that nobody sees it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, and and I'm making fun and jest there. But... I mean, let's face it. The United States military is known for two things. Number one, they don't bring anything out in public unless they have something secret. And number two, they don't retire something as successful as the SR-71 program back in 1992 without having something else around. And this is where I think the Aurora came in. And I'll tell you, I I remember it was 1998 when I first learned about what the Aurora program was, and I believe back then they were classifying it as a YF-19. And then it became, you know, the SR-72 or SR-76, whatever you want to call it now, or whatever it's designated. And one of the things on the specials that I I remember watching on a documentary on this, because I'm a big military aircraft buff, it was how it is said to create a telephone cable you don't remember the ringlet telephone cable in the sky and one time when i lived on vancouver island we were on the i believe it was we were up north on the island and we looked north and lo and behold in the sky never heard anything but here is this contrail that is in the shape of a telephone cord heading north towards Alaska. And I will never forget that. I saw that in 1999, maybe the summer of 2000, one of the two. But it's abs- it was absolutely amazing because here everybody was saying, you know, on these documentaries, that if you want to see one of these things, you have to look for that telephone cable, that curly telephone cable. I think the aircraft exists. I think we talked about that a little bit with the show on chemtrails, because where I live, I have a a, a very wide view of the sky, and I will see the same thing periodically. You'll see the vapor trails from three or four different aircraft and then all of a sudden, there'll be just one that just kind of looks like a spiral going across the sky. But if this if this aircraft if this aircraft Everett is traveling at Mach six, you'll never see it. If it's at a hundred no. if it's at a hundred thousand feet and at Mach six, 
you're never going to see it. That's this true. Is true. Yeah, because it's going to be so far ahead of any any you know sound that it's making that by the time you hear it, it's already gone. I mean, I think uh, what was Mach three point two was uh, the SR seventy one's top speed, and supposedly the unmanned SR seventy three or four, whatever, is you know Mach six. So you're going, <laughs> oh, let's see, be two times 2,436 miles per hour. So, yeah, by the time you hear it, it's already on the other side of the world. What I had been told by, uh, we did a tour of the Udvarhazi Annex, where they have an SR-71 on dis- static display, the guy that was our guide had something to do with military intelligence and he had flown uh, spotters in Vietnam. But it, without, you know, saying too much, he said basically that the fuel costs and the operational expense of the SR 71 is what dropped it because we could do everything it did with our spy satellites now. You know, take that with a. Now, that's the official, so-called, uh, the official <laughs> version. So take it with a grain of salt. If you, but that's I get that's that. what his explain his explain his explanation was. But that's an easy way to deflect something. And let's exactly. face it. And let's face it. Who doesn't out there? Whether you're selling cars, whether you're in the military, whether you're in a hospital, and you're a doctor. Or, I mean, you being a scientist. You know, as much as as much as we sit there and we say, you know what, we have the technology to do this, we still as humans like a human point of view, a human perspective. And a satellite does not give you that human perspective. And a satellite is on a trajectory, whereas to get a bird up there flying around that you can circle over and over and over again to confirm... I don't buy that that legacy for a second that they retired it because the satellites could do it. I really don't. Yeah, it you people want to have that eyes on the ground type thing and I think the SR72 I mean there's some technical data out there about the replacement. You know the the types of engines it has and you know, Aviation Week broke a story about it years ago, and it there's enough smoke to make me think there's a fire somewhere. You know, it, it, there's there's a been they've been doing a lot of uh, hypersonic uh, research for years now. And according to uh, the article I read in Aviation Week, we should be able to, you know, the demonstrator ought to be out in about 2018. So, the like, the F-22 was a, say, a prelude to what's coming, the SR-70. That same technology, that stealth jet technology, is a lot of what's being built into this SR-72. And that... The engine design, it's like two engines in one. 
it's a scramjet as well as a ramjet. It's, it's really hard to explain, basically, because I don't have enough data. <laughs> I don't have enough information on it to elaborate, but to lower the drag, they've combined the engine types. So it's it's kind of, you know, we got another, supposedly we got another year to find out before they roll this thing you know, it becomes public knowledge like the uh, stealth fighters and stealth bombers. So time will tell. But I uh, wonder if one of the ways that it was supposed to be launched is by rock booster rocket. So that could account for those uh, those tremors that have been detected. You know, a rocket launch picks up on, you know, you can pick a rocket launch up on uh, seismograph so maybe that's you know that's our clue you know to play devil's advocate here for a second though what is the benefit with the development of the cameras the spy cameras and spy satellites that we have do we really need spy planes I mean uh, why the technology is so much better that it it puts people in danger it you know is expensive when we have satellites that can take equally high quality pictures well keep in mind though also if we have this uh we've developed hyper you know we've developed hypersonic missiles that can fly, you know, Mach 6 or greater. So not only would it be an observation platform, but it could be a a, a, a terrible weapon. I mean, you want to attack an enemy base, the, the missiles are hitting the target, and the aircraft that launched them is so far out of range, you, you wouldn't know, you literally wouldn't know what hit you. So it it would also work as a, a penetrating strike fighter or, you know, a bomber as well as a reconnaissance platform. What you can't do with, you know, you can't attack to this point that we know so far, you know, it hasn't been, I don't think there's any mass drivers up in orbit. There could be, but... Right now, supposedly our satellites are observation only. So the Mach, you know, a Mach six aircraft would be an advantage. Now That's, the mass driver, that isn't that the, in theory, the satellite that literally would just launch almost like a telephone pole sized rod straight down somewhere. And yeah, it can be just obliterate a target before they knew what was coming. Yeah, a mass driver. The idea of a mass driver is you could take space junk. You know, it's like the blunderbuss of space. As long as you could fit it inside the coil and propel it, you could use anything as a as a projectile, uh, rocks. You know, asteroid. You know, whatever you wanted to sand or whatever you could find. You could send it down with a mass driver. There was actually a idea back in the 70s that they were going to put mass drivers on the moon so that they could send ore 
back to you know back to earth by way of ma- this mass driver i don't know whatever happened probably you know it's one of those great ideas that when they got to thinking about it, it's like okay why you know what what's up there that we need to spend all that money on so well you know what we'll move on let's get to a question from mike here he says, what do the two E's think about John Kerry going to the Antarctic the day after the U.S. elections? Hmm. Uh, yeah, staying relevant? I don't know. I, I, when it comes to politicians doing anything like that, I sort of, you know, it's like just... I, I'm too cynical to see anything in it, but a chance to stay relevant and stay in the news. Yeah, I would tend to agree with Eric, or or maybe he was looking to move. I I, I don't know. I there's there's too many factors in that, and you'll never know if that was planned well in advance or if it was a spur of the moment thing. That there's too many too many factors that you have to consider to really make a. A, a good judgment call on that. Yeah, it might have been on his bucket list, and that was the last. Uh, that was his last chance to get down there as an official without spending his own money. I am more intrigued by Buzz Aldrin's tweet that we are all in danger. It is evil itself. You know, that's that's, that's the one that makes my hair crawl. <laughs> I, I looked for that tweet everywhere when that came out, and I did not find it on his system. I did not find... And, and, you know, it's easy to hack a tweet. I'm not buying that he wrote that. I'm not... I'm not buying that he did... that he wrote that at all. Yeah, I believe Snopes... the the site Snopes might have called it false. Oh, for sure. For sure. What do you think about remote viewing? Robert Morningstar that we had on earlier for the first two hours was talking about how he was able to, his entire life basically able to project an astral travel and remote view anything that was going on at any time. I have had a number of remote viewers on this show. And I'll tell you, I've had some weird things happen to me over the last five, six years. And I know that the U.S. government did some work with remote viewing. I think everybody knows that. CIA. Are you buying that it actually works ever? Yes. Or, oh. Okay, Eric, go ahead. Yeah, because they've actually, if you read, uh, oh, Russell Targ's book, I mean, there's actually been some successful hostage rescues. There's been some... You know, they found a missing bomb using remote viewing. There, There is a success rate there that was verifiable. So, yeah, I think it's well within the realm of possibility that it exists. I think it's probably unpredictable, like most of that kind of stuff is. But, you know, if you do enough times, you'll get a hit. But how accurate? I mean, I can sit here and say that... You know, I see a bomb wherever in the world. Let's go to the jungles of Vietnam. I'm pretty sure there's still bombs that are undetonated there. 
and booby traps. But, I mean, I guess I look at it and say, you know, what is the accuracy on that? Well, according I tend to think of it... Yeah, go ahead, Everett. I tend to think of it as a a tool that has some possibilities one of the thing that one of the things that i've noticed about a lot of the sketches that remote viewers do is that sometimes either they're dead on and it's really really frightening or most of the time they're vague enough that you can kind of fit it into wherever something is found and that's that's the problem I have with it. I believe there's something there, but I think we need to figure out what that something is. And I think that it can be a tool to kind of go along with some other things, some other ideas and some other information, but I don't think it's really effective on its own. I'm just not sure of the accuracy of it. Now, people who have done it for a long time, they swear by it. They swear it works. They swear they're accurate. They're, they're able to see things and go right into other people's homes and houses. I mean, we look at what Eric Cooper does with his astral team at Forest Moon Paranormal, helping people out of, you know, paranormal situations. And Eric has full trust. Eric's the type of guy as our audience will get to know him, our newer audience on WQEE 99, the key, you know, Eric's the type of guy where he's not going to BS you. He's got 20 years service in the military, 19 and a half as a medic. He doesn't play games. He doesn't have to. This guy's been to combat four times. Well, I've had his astral team come here and I know they don't know the layout of my house before time and they give directions about how to seal a portal that they wouldn't have known where it was if they weren't here to see it. So I I fully believe that Eric Cooper's astral team is legit. I've had personal experience with it. Ev? I stand by what I said before. I mean, there are some cases that the the accuracy is very intriguing, but so many of them are very vague. I I agree that Eric Cooper or Eric Cooper's team, you know, he picks the best people that he can, and maybe their accuracy is higher than most, and that's something that we need to study. That. What is it? What are the qualities of these people? What are they doing to kind of quantify and and figure out what makes a good, accurate remote viewer? Right. Well, let let me play devil's advocate for a second here. (laughs) I love this. If we do have a finely tuned military-grade remote viewing team... Wouldn't you throw misses out there just sort of as camouflage? Would we want our enemies knowing that we can appear in their offices, look at their documents, and then come back with a reading of the... Yeah, I I just wonder if there's not some subterfuge going on to, to cover up that we're good at it. 
Could you know, be. Maybe the maybe the misses are just the the near misses or the vague ones are just so that our enemies' sake, ah, they're just you know they're just fooling around or you know it's misinformation. Could very well be. It's perfectly plausible. Absolutely. Let's move on here, guys, because we only got about six, seven minutes left. Okay, I want to get to something that I found Robert being very intrigued on. One of our listeners tonight asked if Robert believed that Donald Trump could be the disclosure president. I personally don't think so. I don't think he cares about it. It doesn't affect America directly, even though it does. I'm going to bite my tongue on that one. But on the flip side... I don't think that he would want to do that. I don't think it interests him. It doesn't intrigue him. Do you think Donald Trump ever could be the disclosure president in the end? I don't think that he has the the relationships. I don't think he's developing the relationships with the different government agencies to fully get any information that they don't have to give him. I don't see them turning things over to him that they don't want disclosed. Um, when I sit back and I watch Donald Trump and his tweets and his speeches, I'm starting to think that either he is absolutely brilliant and has some sort of master plan, or he's a lunatic who really... You know, he's egomaniacal. Uh, it, it, I don't want to say dangerous. I, I, I don't want to do all the fear-mongering, but he's one or the other. And I don't think that any government agency that's privy to secret information that could change the world is going to voluntarily give that up to Donald Trump. I kind of agree with uh I'm afraid I agree with uh, Everett on that one, but he is pragmatic. If he saw that it wasn't, if he knew something and knew that it would be advantageous to him, I think he'd give it up in a minute if he knew it. But how much can you trust the information that Donald Trump releases or how much can you trust the information that various agencies would release to him? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, they could, they could uh, say, "Hey, Don, look at this. You know, we can disclose this." And then, as soon as he opens his mouth, they say, "Well, no, that was not." Yeah, you, know, you know how they can spin things and you know pull the rug out from under people. So, I don't think, I don't think he's going to be. I, I'm with Everett. I don't think it's a, it's high on his list of priorities. And unless he, I don't know, unless it became important to him, there's not, I don't even think it's a subject that crosses his mind. I really don't. He seems to be a very nuts and bolts kind of bottom line guy. So I don't think that's something he's geared to experience. I don't think it interests him. You know, I think he is so focused on trying to figure out what the hell is going on in America 
good or bad, you know, bringing some things back to the 1960s pollution records, mm. you know, that I don't think that any type of alien encounter would be something that absolutely throws him. But, I mean, like you guys said, and like a few people have said in the chat room, if you're in the military or you're high up in the NSA or CIA or in some black ops program, is he the kind of guy you want to be discussing this? I mean, you look at the at the crap that Hillary took when she mentioned how long during the election campaign, how long it took to launch a missile. Mm-hmm. You know, she took a lot of crap you know, there, for that. There, there is an opportunity here for some soft disclosure, though, in the sense that with with his record of not always showing up at these security briefings and things, something can be slipped in there, put into the record. He's missed it. We ignore it. And 20 years down the road, we find out that, Oh, the CIA said they were doing this or had this. And the NSA said this, and it's going to go undiscovered unnoticed for another 20 years. If it doesn't interest him, he's not doing it. Huh? Yeah, I one. think a list of one, uh, a list of twenty things UFO disclosures probably somewhere around fifty-eight. <laughs> it's, I just don't even think it's on his radar. I don't think it fits his paradigm, or it's even, you know, I, I just get the impression that he couldn't care less. You know, what his kids are wearing to school is probably more higher up on his list. Yeah, I just don't think. Of course, maybe that's the perfect guy to have the disclosures, the one that doesn't give a crap. So that might that might be how it happens. But, you know, just because the universe has a sense of irony, but I don't foresee it. I really don't. I think he is way too focused on trying to fix what he sees as issues rather than rather than trying to fix what could be happening. Now, granted, I think he also is smart enough of a of a man, you know, that I'm sure he can keep a secret. I think there are certain things that he's been told he can and cannot say. Just like when we heard, you know, like Bill, when Bill Clinton first got in, the first thing he wanted to know was about JFK and and about Roswell. Sure, he denied what was going on, that that he was able to get information on that, but maybe reality is he wasn't allowed, right? Maybe Donald Trump will be the one who writes his memoir in ten years and actually writes a paragraph or a, a chapter on it much like you know bush senior just kind of wrote a one sentence line in one of his paragraph or in one of his chapters about it was something he wouldn't discuss or could not discuss or won't discuss maybe donald trump will be the one to write about it somewhere down the road yeah because he is a bit of a he is sort of a loose cannon and he's you know he would do something like that to spite the people that told him not to talk about it. And I think where you ever mentioned how much are they going to share? Because, you know, they've already done their psych profile on him. So they know what they tell him, you know, what his 
the odds are that he's going to divulge something they don't want him to. So, I, I, said, I, I just don't think it's him. Gentlemen, on that note, i got to wrap things up. If you're listening in on the Spaced Out Radio side, you are hearing Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal play. He's rocking us in and out of every episode. Bumblefoot, the official music of Spaced Out Radio. Tomorrow night on the show, we have Thomas Seward coming on. He's a First Nations member from British Columbia. For those of you who are not familiar with the term First Nations, and you're in the United States, we'll say American Indian. He's a believer in Bigfoot. Doesn't buy into a lot of the legends his own people have told him. Buys more into the scientific side of the animal. We're going to get into all of it tomorrow, 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time at spaceoutradio.com. Remember, we want to thank everyone tuning in in the chat rooms tonight. You're wonderful. Hashtag Spaced Out Radio. John, Mark, Rahonda, Deb, Ron, you know who you are. Jeff, we'll throw a little bit of you and Canadian Joe in there as well. Good to have you with us. Hey, if you want to support this show, you can go to spaceoutradio.com, become a space traveler, or go to patreon.com and become one of our patrons as we try to build this bigger and better for you. Much love to everybody out there in Space Out Radio Land. We will be back in exactly 21 hours from now, and I'm glad you will be too. So thank you very much. Talk to you soon.